Welcome, everybody, to another episode of After Further Review. Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor is our producer. You're listening to the Rolling Stones' 1972 release of Exile on Main Street. Rocks off. They had a huge tour that year, John. So you'd anticipate that I would talk about this a lot. And there's John. If you're watching on video, he has a great T-shirt from the 72 tour. If you're not watching it, it's, you know, it's a nice T-shirt. Uh, but, but yes, I did not you, get the show. I did not go and see the Stones for my eighth birthday. Sadly, that is yeah. the Rolling Stones tour. If I could pick one, that's the sure. one I'd go back that's and see. It, it is a classic. There is no the doubt one. about it. There's no doubt about it. I'd like to see uh, 69, 69 as well. And I'd love to see 78, to tell you the truth. 75, I could do without. But, I have uh, a video of 75. That was a 75 looked like uh, that whole thing looked like it was the uh, the whole show looked like it was the after party. Because they already yeah. looked like they'd been, you know, not they, they weren't drunk. They were hung over from being drunk and drugged up by the yeah. time they hit the stage. And that was the one yeah. I think when, you know, it would say their, you know, schedule on the thing was a show at eight o'clock and they'd come on at like four in the morning. So uh, that's, I love that stuff. Yeah, we do that those, with, they, they, they were just it. rock and roll. They didn't care. They didn't give a crap about anything right. or anyone. And Keith was probably at his worst in terms of his addictions, he had gone through what? How many transfusions by 1975, John? Million six. A million six. And yet it had been, he had, the timing was a little off on this one. So he was fully <laughs> enmeshed in whatever version of his addiction he was. And right. uh, 75, you know, and Bobby Keys, they, they fired him on that tour, I believe. They found him in a bathtub full of ice. Uh, you know, I just watched, show, you know what? You know, I, all kinds of crap. I just watched, the, the other night, I just watched the documentary on Bobby Keys because every it's called Every Night's a Saturday Night. It's based on the book about, uh, about Keys. So I highly recommend that. And Jeff, you'll get a kick out of it too. Uh, first of all, just the swath of people that Bobby Keys played with. Right. Um, starting with Buddy Holly's crickets after Buddy Holly had passed away and then just running through everybody else and how these guys were all recording in studios all at the same time. Back when, you know, you had to record in a studio, they'd record and, and it'd be like the stones in one room and it would be, you know, Muddy Waters would be down the way. And then Stevie Wonder and Bobby Keys just wandered between and he was just so well known that they're like, hey, come on in and play on this. So yeah, it's a great documentary. Considering how hard he treated his body and how he treated it like a rodeo, yeah. uh, it's amazing he lived into his 70s. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, to get fired from the Rolling Stones is saying something. It really is. Right. So right. There was a great uh there was a great uh, joke, and it was about actually Stephen Adler of Guns N' Roses. And you can say the same thing. It's like Stephen Adler was fired from Guns N' Roses. The fuck do you have to do to get fired from Guns yeah. N' Roses? Yeah. <laughs> If, you, if you've checked in on Steven Adler lately, oh, yeah. you know. I think he had the stroke after he quit, but he was, you know, he was working in that direction. Yeah, so. he, was, he was making the stroke happen. Yeah. <laughs> he was laying down the foundation for and the I've stroke. I've never understood how drummers can do that because, you know, the amount of energy it takes to drum for an entire show. I mean, I get it. You're going you're gonna to do all the blow you can just to stay awake. But at a point, you know, you abuse yourself. You know, you're a organ player. Hell, you can sit in a chair, maybe smoking and drinking the whole time. Right. You're playing drums, though. Oof. Yeah, you can keep your heart rate down at about 72, even if you're totally high on coke, if you're, you know, an organ player. But if you're a drummer, it's already at 120 before you look at Garth Hudson, your body. So, yeah, look at Garth Hudson, Garth Hudson coming in about three bills. Just I think he sits on a couch when he plays, actually. And, you know, with a heating pad and, you know, it's just uh, drummers. They got to they got to work for a living. It has nothing to do with the physicality of drumming. It has everything to do with the, the mindset that makes one a drummer. Yeah, that's why. true. They're not like us. The thing. They're not. 
They're not like us at all. That's a good point. So you would think that this 72 tour, probably the classic, if you ask most uh, learned Stones fan, would be featured or at least talked about significantly yeah. on a, you know, a show that we're doing on 1972. Yes, it's a sports show ostensibly, but we've reached out to, you know, world events and some pop culture. And we're going to continue to expand that as we, as we rebrand our show. Uh, but I don't touch it at all, John. I, I do do a, a few pop culture references during the show. I don't touch on the stones at all. Wow. I, I don't even know. I'm disappointed. Anymore. Yeah, exactly. Do you? I mean, I'm you, not. My level of disappointment. Down, right? Look, my level of disappointment with you. Uh, you know, I think most people who've listened to this show are like, you know, that's uh, that cup runneth over. Sure, um, sure, but sure. but this this is adding to it because one of the early things that you and I connected on, yeah, uh, was our yeah. love for the Rolling Stones and no and our obsession with the Kennedy assassination. Yes, I mean, which is you know, are, yes, there are a, there's like moment. four things that I'm yeah. that I that I think about. You know more Every about day. than you think. Honestly, things. is there a day that goes by that you don't think about the Rolling Stones or the Kennedy assassination? I can no, easily say there's not a day that I don't of think about both of those. Of course not. Of course not. And then, you know, maybe the Niners, perhaps the Giants. Really? Okay. You know. See, now, I don't think mine ever bleeds over into sports uh, no, like no, every I mean, day. Maybe it's every other day for, for, for a sports thing. But uh, we, will, we will ostensibly do 1972, uh, the year in sports and other stuff. But believe me, folks, there's tons of other stuff when, uh, when it comes to this. So let's take a I look right now. I brought this for when we get there. I brought, I brought, brought that. I brought that for when we get there. I like it. Figure, they there it is. Probably. And they, they unveiled that particular logo yes. that year. That it goes back to my change your uniform. If you're if your team Cleveland, one of the reasons you ain't winning is because that stupid ass orange helmet's just not working. You need yeah. something new. Whenever you sh- when yeah, whenever you change that Denver. Up. Broncos, the Tennessee Titans, when they went from Oilers yeah, to Titans, Tampa Bay in 02. Well, yes, seven first, but they be all of a sudden they became a winning team. Yes, yep. It, there's lots of evidence for that. I, we will get to the Washington football team, and I I have a new name for them because we have to refer to them, John, to some degree as the team that they were called then. But we also have to keep in mind sensitivity issues. So there's a line you have to walk. And I figured out how to do it. I can't wow. wait to get to that part. Hey, yeah. hey, quickly, I have an idea for the Cleveland Browns. If they want to ch- have a logo change, they could uh, be they could make their new guy Doc Brown and have him <laughs> on the helmet. Marty, we got to run it reverse, Marty. I love it. No, that's absolutely that's perfect. perfect. That it's like perfect. The, it's like Ole Miss when they it's like we have to get rid of the Confederate rebel, and somebody's like. It's perfect. You you do the Rebel Alliance from Star Wars, and the guy trolling the sidelines is Admiral whatever his name is. I don't remember because I've kissed a girl. Uh, but uh, that's kind of like the uh, you know it's, it's the same thing. That's that sort of thing. No, I love it. I do love it. I think yeah, there's plenty of rebels. You could have George Washington on the front for crying. Well, out that's loud. that's culturally a problem. <laughs> All right. How about if you have you could have John Adams? John sure. Adams hated hated slavery and was a rebel as well yeah the only one of the founding fathers who never owned a slave so sure i'm you know i'm in favor of anything john adams i know you are i know you are and i think uh his legacy whilst uh you know completely a remarkable legacy for again any learned student of u.s history you know culturally he 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 gets the short shift a lot 
I love the fact that we've spent more time now on somebody who died in 1826 than anything in 72 than in 1972. So maybe we maybe we should move on because you've told me that this this one uh, buckle yeah. up, people. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, just buckle up. We'll see. You know, and if we're still here at 930, don't blame it was a me. consequential four months, the last four months of 1972. And and John, we had two full episodes of the previous eight. This was an amazing year, an amazingly yeah, consequential year. Let's go. And 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 what was the theme? Do you remember the theme of, of 1972? Yes, a year of first, and that continues in these last four months. But boy, oh boy, you do need to buckle up for these last four months. There are records and milestones we're going to get, political heights, political depths. And remember, heights, Olympic depth, depths, I, I have a Halloween story. And final journeys. Like, I have a Halloween story as well. So oh, don't let well, it, then, we can't get out of October without me telling a Halloween story that I can tie into the 1972 Springfield Youth uh, Football, Springfield Boys Club Rough Riders County Champion Team and this year's yeah. Super Bowl halftime. How about that? See, now I love that. I, I love that on many levels. I love the fact that you brought up the Springfield uh, football Boys team. Springfield, the Boys Club, uh, all, all the shows in 1972. You have brought your team up. Only championship I ever won. And it was one of your first years. It was my first year ever. Organized football. So yep. there it is. So it went all went downhill. You peaked. You peaked in 72. I mean, I have always said, truthfully, as an athlete, I think I peaked in 74. Sure. But uh, but seventy yeah I I, I peaked uh, <laughs> Steve Carricker who uh, who knows this story well and reminded me of the story is uh, is chiming in but uh, and I think Steve Carricker would agree as well that I peaked as an athlete at at the age of ten. Fair enough. Yeah. I think I think uh, I didn't peak at all until no. ten because I was the runt of the of the block and uh, I was constantly under threat of getting beaten up. So I Which developed speed. Wheels. You have wheels. I, you I have developed wheels. Speed, Deceptive I had, speed. I had some natural hand-eye coordination. So all of a sudden they could, you know, we're playing Nerf football in the street. They could just put me out wide and I could just bolt down and I could, I could get open every time and catch you, the ball. And all of a sudden now I was, I was welcome. And that was when I was 10 before that I was useless. Yeah. Yeah. I said eight, eight to 10 were probably the glow. And I wasn't really good at eight uh, by nine. I was playing quarterback, called on my own plays at nine. Wow. So, and then 10 probably peaked. And then after that, it was, it was all downhill. So. All right. So here we go. Uh, not going downhill at all was Bobby Fisher, uh, Bobby Fisher at uh, in September. Now we're doing September again, folks, September through the end of the year. That's part three. And this is September 1st. Bobby Fisher defeats Boris Spassky, John. And this has been this, this tournament's been happening for a few weeks now uh, to become the first, this is another first, first American born in the United States to win the World Chest, ch- chest ch- Championship. And I remember it was a big story back in 70s. Sure was. Uh, about Bobby Fischer. They made a movie about it, for crying out loud, and they've done a lot of documentaries. Yep. Bobby Fischer does that. All right, so now... People, can I just get... I want to chime in there, Mark, because sure. people who weren't alive then don't realize that the Cold War lent lent itself to sporting events because anytime we were uh, competing against the Soviet Union and any everything it didn't matter what the sport was i mean in 1980 people who had never seen a hockey game before were up in arms people yeah. who don't play chess or didn't follow chess these things were were huge during the cold war when we went to china to play ping pong against the chinese for god's sake it was a big story so yeah, this was huge and fisher is a complicated complicated uh 
figure in yeah, any way. I mean, and I think you probably have to be. I know I'm not speaking uh, from any position of knowledge, but I think you probably have to be if you're that good at something that niche. You know what yeah. I mean? You have you have to be a little off. It's like a closer in baseball. Right. I, I think it's, it's it's sort of the same. It's like a kicker in the NFL. Yeah. It's it's one of those kinds of things where you just and that and when I say a little off, that means just society's definition of a little off. I think if you're uh, that focused on any specific thing, yeah. um, it, it it probably means that you may not be as rounded in other areas because you spent so much time in it. And to your point, when it's something like chess, which is such a niche thing, and I love chess. I've been playing on uh, blind chess with for we- weeks now, uh, and I'm just horrible. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, and, and there are a couple screws loose on Bobby Fischer. He is an interesting. Now, Searching for Bobby Fischer, the movie you mentioned, is an outstanding movie. And look up the documentaries because he's, oh boy, he was he he ended up just bat crap crazy. Yeah, still around, so he's yep. hanging in. All right, now we're going back to the Summer Olympics, which started, I believe, on the 26th of August. Olga Corbett has already uh, uh, come and gone in terms of her stardom, her her media darling. <laughs> That's um, she's gone. She's departed. She's, yeah, In the words of Mark Ferrer, she's departed. She's, she's departed. But Mark Spitz, he's already won uh, three, I believe. No, he's already won four, I believe, gold medals at this point in time. Uh, strikes again. Um, but, uh, Mark Spitz is now on his way in these next few days. And it's basically the third. He wins the coveted goal, uh, 100-meter gold medal. He sets another world record. All right. And he and he completes the double because he had already won the 200 meter world record. The next day, the U.S. four by 100 medley relay team sets another world record. Mm -hmm. So Mark Spitz, by September 4th, had uh, had become again the first. Here's another first, the first athlete to win seven Olympic gold medals at a single game, John. And, And not only that, not only that, but every one of his gold medals was a world record. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, just it was dominance, remarkable. Unlike anything that we'd seen up to that point in time, finally, and frankly, until Michael Phelps came came along, there was nothing yeah. that even even came close to it. I mean, it was a it, it was it was a one man decathlon <laughs> with 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 uh, Spitz. Um, yeah, he was uh, he, he was the most decorated uh, Olympic athlete in American history for a very very yeah, long time. Yeah, it, it was a remarkable run. There's no doubt about that. He completed the seven gold medals on September fourth. September fifth comes around and uh, tragedy strikes but we're going to go to a pop culture reference first on september 5th the jerry lewis telethon happened that year on on september 5th and do you know who his guests were september 5th john jerry lewis it was i think his seventh telethon at that point in time uh, uh, only yeah, because you sent me an outline oh i did of course yes I did. So, so there you go you know there it is john to be here happy to be here there it is. So that's a nice little pop, pop culture reference. You don't think of Jerry Lewis and John and Yoko Ono circa 1972. You right. don't really think of them in the same room, much less the same TV show. Right. But there they were. And, uh, it, it's and of course, uh, Lennon sang his uh, big hit number nine dream and Yoko sang her song. And people left the theater immediately. Yes. Nothing will clear a room like the complete works of Yoko Ono. And I have a lot of respect for her as a person, but. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you're, you don't have any respect for her as an artist is what you're saying. Well, I just, I don't get it. That's okay. okay. Well, don't that's good. Get don't have to so, get yeah. it. So it's not a matter of respect. It's just a matter of you not. Yeah, I don't get it. Understanding. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really get the appeal, but that's okay. 
And uh, I, I, the only reason I'm going to call you on this particular fact, Johnny, and uh, normally I would let this go. Number nine dream wasn't released in 1972. I was yes. just trying to pick something that wasn't. I sure. mean, no, he didn't do much in 72. It was a bad year for all the ex Beatles. It really was. He released sometime in New York City, somewhere in New York City, sometime just, in New York City. And let me explain went, my was, thought process there. My thought process was, you know me, Mark, I, I don't I don't want to do I don't want to do the one everyone will get. I don't want it to be imagine. I get it. Uh, I don't want it to be, you know, and I can't do anything off. Um, uh, uh, his, his first album, Plastic Ono Band, be, because uh, uh, nobody knows, you know, outside of you and I, if I said love or God or, you know, and, uh, I guess mother, I probably might, some people might know. So I want to go with one that was kind of off that showed that I know the deep tracks. And of course, you called me out on it as well. He should have. I don't blame you. <laughs> Yeah, you would have done the same thing to me, right? Maybe he previewed it, Mark. Maybe he previewed it. Do you know that? Yeah, people play songs not on the album yet. I do not. I like to play I, one I haven't, no one's ever heard before. <laughs> and then Yoko's going to scream into the microphone. All right, so here we go. We got to go through this. Uh, September 5th, uh, the uh, the Munich massacre starts. Uh, 11 Israeli athletes uh, eventually are murdered after eight members of uh, the terrorist group Black September. Uh, they invade the Olympic Village, uh, and um, five of the guerrillas end up getting killed. Three three of them actually survive mm -hmm. and are arrested. And then there's the Lufthansa hijacking. Lufthansa. Lufthansa. Uh, Lufthansa hijacking a month later, where they demand the release of those three, and they did that. Mm -hmm. uh, Mossad later hunted down them, got two out of the three. The other guy is still alive right now, yeah. believe it or not. So there is I do know one, that. It's remarkable. One yeah, one black. And it should September be pointed guy. out that Black September was a name that they came up with for this uh, for this operation, right? That was not, yeah. it was just sort of an, it was know, a PLO. Right. There were a lot of terrorist uh, offshoot organizations to the, the Palestine Liberation Organization. And that's and that's what they were in Black September. Obviously, this operation took place in September. But it's, it's one of the most vivid memories of my youth, frankly. There's no doubt about it. I, me too. And that one picture of the masked, uh, you know, terrorist up there on the second floor just is so haunting. You know, evidently, West German neo-Nazis gave the group logistical assistance because, of course, they were studying this area and uh, where everyone was going to be and the logistics of this place for weeks prior to this. Yeah. Uh, when they got to the fence to hop it, it was a six and a half foot chain link fence. And if you've seen the movie uh, Munich you'll know that Canadian athletes unknowingly, unwittingly, you know, they were all kind of sneaking into the Olympic Village and they were all having fun. It was, right. you know, it was 1972, you know, you're hippies. It's like sex, drugs, rock and roll, do whatever you want. And they helped these terrorists uh, over the fence. So, uh, you know, again, there was heroic action by a couple of members of the wrestling team. They actually saved a couple of their teammates who were in those apartments, who yeah. were able to escape because they fought the terrorists. They lost their lives doing it. But that's a uh, um, um, something worth mentioning. And, you know, the way the journey, yeah, granted, it's all hindsight. Granted, the Germans were not prepared for this. They didn't even have their own sort of standing army yet in 1972. Because they, they, they were not allowed after World War II. Exactly. They were limited to what they could do. They didn't have automatic weapons. Uh, right. And yeah, it was it was they were not prepared for something like this at all. But they had a rescue plan. They were going to, you know, go through the ventilation shafts. They were going to try and surprise and kill the terrorists. And then, you know, camera crews, German camera crews, you know, just were 
Now, granted, you know, granted, there, there was no coordination and they, you know, they see these other people sort of crawling around outside of the apartments. And of course, the terrorists are just watching this on watching TV. On TV. I mean, every, right. Everywhere you turn, this thing was mishandled and it's just very, very sad. And, you know, and yet it was 12 hours after the first murders of those first two uh, wrestling coaches and I believe a referee. Um, 12 hours after that, before the IOC decided to stop the games, the games had continued for 12 hours. And we know who was in charge of the IOC. We know who the president of the IOC was, was Avery Brundage. And it's just yet one more. I think this might have been the nail in the coffin, John, because he was yeah. replaced after this. Yeah, well, he, yeah. We mentioned him on this show before. He is not a uh, he is not someone to be admired, frankly. You know, and, and, and I mean, everyone's watching this. The games finally cease. And Frank Shorter, who we'll mention a little bit later, who won a, the marathon there that year, was observing from his own balcony. He could see everything happening. And he said he, he was quoted as saying, imagine those poor guys over there. Every five minutes, he says a psycho with a machine gun says, let's kill him now. And someone else says, no, let's wait a while. And he says, how long can you take that? And this is Frank Shorter, American athlete, just commenting on this. And mm. the, the rest of the world is watching this. I mean, yeah, you're eight or whatever it is. I'm 11, almost 12. And it's just, it it, it freaks me out. It, abs- it had to have, it freaked the world out. It freaked the athletes out. Mark Spitz, after he won his seven gold medals, did not return to the Olympic Village. And who could blame him? He, right. he is Jewish, for crying out loud. Right, yeah. And then the uh, you know the, the 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 whole thing and and I, I just remember again vividly some part the whole thing about uh, you know uh, I remember my mom saying oh my God Israeli athletes in Germany and it yeah. you know at that point it's only twenty seven years after the end of the first world if you think about that in terms Mark it's nineteen ninety three. Yeah, that's you know nineteen ninety four. Excuse me, nineteen ninety four. And yeah, think about that. Nineteen ninety four. I have great memory of of everything that happened in night generally uh, in 1994. Yeah. Um, so yeah, people that was so still fresh in people's minds. It's 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 a watershed moment um, in a and, lot of ways. And they you know they really blew the whole the whole rescue operation. They were they were they were they had snipers ready to go. They had a whole crew. Uh, you know they were uh, the terrorists wanted a safe passage to Cairo, so they had they had them come to the airport in helicopters. There was a you know, a, a 727 Boeing jet ready to go. There were West German police officers who were posed or dressed as flight crew. A lot of them at some point in time, they just thought, you know, that this is, yeah. The plan was to overpower them when they, when they boarded the terrorists, but they right. thought that this was going to be a suicide operation. They abandoned their mission. They didn't consult anyone. And once the terrorists got to the plane and saw no one inside, they knew they they knew they'd been set up. The snipers yeah. start, you know, attacking or, or shooting them to try and get them. The helicopters came in the wrong way, so they didn't have good angles on their shots. And, yeah. you know, the Israeli athletes were sitting ducks. It was just um, just so sad. And, you know, all of them, all of them that were captured, there were two that died initially. And then there were nine in the two helicopters and, and they both died, obviously. Yeah. And I know at least one, David Berger, who was, I believe, a weightlifter, um, was yeah. uh, an American citizen. He had dual citizenship, I believe there were. And I think he may have been there may have been more than that. I remember the documentary on his parents who were still alive at the time of the documentary. I think it was a real sports documentary on HBO. Um, we lived in Ohio. 
and basically watch the whole thing play out on television because again the coordination even you know with our state department and everything it was a you know again it's hard for people to realize but we go back in that time and i know you remember this market terrorism really was just starting to bubble to the surface at that point in time Uh, hijackings which had started in the in the 60s had become you know a, a a I'm not going to say an everyday occurrence, but if you look at in-depth timelines of the late 1960s into the 70s, hijackings were, I dare you say it, a relatively common experience at that point. Yeah, I mean, relatively common, certainly. Yeah, there was, you know, maybe a hijack. Now, granted, if there's 100,000 flights a day, right? But there were a couple a a month, that's, you know, or or, or at least a a couple a year no, I, if not more than that so yeah. it was it it had, be, it had become you know a, a, again we were paying the price then i think a lot of this and, and throw my own politics into this a lot of this still comes from the treaty of versailles uh in, in 1919 but it, uh yeah. really really that terrorism was becoming a a global issue at this point in time more than it had previously yeah, and a lot of decolonization in response to this was happening at this time, uh, and the the Middle East ever since ever since forty seven was a mess. The yep. United Nations tried to uh, partition it. Uh, they they wanted to slowly withdraw Britain from all of that because, of course, they were the protectorate. And well, it, was just it, it destabilized it. You know, there, there is certainly I think both you and I would agree that uh, anti-colonialization was was a good thing. The British colonies, the French colonies, um, you know, the time had passed on all of that in these countries having independence. But it, a lot of it was done so quickly, it just destabilized areas and led to civil war. I mean, I know that I, I'm not sure I think that comes up a little bit later in your uh, in your presentation. But uh, it was it it the, it was a volatile situation. They poured gasoline onto a volatile situation in many respects. Yeah. I mean, we saw what happened in the Arab Spring that happened in 2010, 2011, right. whatever it is. And it, it, things are still destabilized. I mean, that's the next step. That's what always happens. And that's what's always going to happen when you occupy or become a protectorate of a land that is, you know, thousands of miles from where you are. Right. And you have no business being in there. Right. And, and he didn't even do that far. Look at Czechoslovakia. Look at look at Czechoslovakia when the Soviet Union fell. And all of a sudden, these people living side by side. Now they 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 venture into yeah. civil war. Human, yeah. human nature doesn't change, Mark. It does not, Johnny. It doesn't evolve, unfortunately. And it was an Sadly. unspeakable tragedy that uh, clearly had never happened before. Uh, but let's get uh, let's get back to sports a little bit here. Uh, just a um, couple days later, on September 8th, uh, Fergie Jenkins, Johnny, won his 20th game for the sixth straight year. And this is this is a big deal. Lefty Grove was the last one to win seven in a row. Wow. That was in 1931. He was also the last pitcher to win 31 games before Denny McLean. Warren Spahn won 20 for six straight years, but that was it. I looked them all up. No, no Tom Seaver, no Juan Marichal, no Steve Carlton, no Bob Gibson. None of these guys won 20 games. You know, not uh, Whitey Ford, not not Koufax, not Glavin, not Maddox. None of these guys won 20 games uh, in a row. Uh, 20 games six times in a row. Fergie Jenkins. And, And doing it for a really a second division team his entire career which is why i think he toiled somewhat in obscurity and he, he moved around a little in his career too he didn't stay with the cubs the whole time he, he ended up moving around certainly towards the end of his career but he is a he's a little guy he's kind of lost a little bit to history ferguson jenkins a little bit he he was as dominant a pitcher to your point for that period of time as there was he was a frontline number one starter for just about any team in baseball he would have been 
Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And and it took him a while to get into the Hall of Fame. And I think it he did. had a drug bust at one point and it was right. marijuana. It was, you know, when you look at that now and it's like, really, really? And it took him a while to get into the Hall of Fame, but he is deservedly in it. Well, we're going back to the Olympics now. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess there's not a lot of entertainment value in the show at the moment, John. Because no, it's, it's just a down, down. It spiral. really is. It really is. And so I guess we recommend if you have any uppers uh, nearby, you know, perhaps. Wow. <laughs> right. If, if Ferguson Jenkins had just stuck with the amphetamines that were available to him, yes. he'd been fine. They were free. They were on, And they we were might need them now for this show. On the table, you know, we <laughs> both know Joe Candelora, and he talks about the greenies. The greenies would just be in a bowl on the table. You could just grab a handful of greenies. According baseball to players have talked about that forever. There was baseball. coffee that was I'm there was sure coffee that had amphetamines in it. It's yeah, it was it was it was a different time. Or was it? Well, and it happened because of cross-country traveling. When, once yeah. San Francisco and Los Angeles had baseball teams and there had to you know, travel, and the 162-game schedule became brutal. It's a, it's a serious grind. Yeah. People don't understand that. They think, oh, you're just playing a kid's game. What's wrong? Right. You know, no, I mean. And uh, it is a serious grind, which is these baseball writers are just miserable, miserable people because they can't rise above it like the athletes do. No. Uh, at any rate, so uh, so here we are. We're back in Munich, Soviet Union against the United States. It's the finals. The both countries have sort of gone through their competition like a hot knife through butter for the most part. Uh, we talked about the United States having a little trouble with Brazil. Soviet Union had some trouble as well in the, I believe, the semis, uh, but. You know, this is this is really, really an amazing first because the United States came into this 63 and 0. They had never not gotten a gold medal in the Olympics since the time basketball was introduced as a sport. They uh, were starting to be a little bit challenged by the Soviet Union. Come 1952, Soviet team got silvers in 52, 56, 60, 64. They got a bronze in 68. Uh, but again, you know, the Soviets, the Eastern Bloc had kind of figured this out. We've talked about this. Obviously, the IOC banned all professional athletes at the time, but the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, they got around it, Johnny. Yep. Because they listed their top players as what? Um, they're uh, in the military. They were, uh, yeah, they were soldiers. They, they were, were soldiers. soldiers. They were, that's why they were, you know, they were called the Red Army team. The, the hockey team certainly was called yeah. the Red Army team. And they were in the military, but all they did was train for, uh, yeah. for, for the sport. Yeah. I mean, that's just totally cheating. They totally were it breaching is. all of those rules. They it were is. just cheating. They weren't amateurs. They no. weren't amateurs. They, they were not. And the American team wasn't full strength. Uh, Bill Walton uh, declined to come. I guess he was, you know, too. I don't know. I don't know. I guess he was interested in you following the dead uh, around Europe, maybe, maybe, or a budding relationship with Patty Hearst, perhaps that we didn't know much about. <laughs> Supposed to flower a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> uh, who knows? I, I used to do a better Bill Walton than I do now. I just wanted to go into a Bill, Bill Walton. Yeah. That's terrible. And you know, I, yeah, I can't. I'm, we love Bill Walton. Oh my God! One of my favorites. One of my yeah. favorites. Uh, Doug Collins was there, and we all, we all know Doug Collins. He plays just good enough to lose. We know this. And he coaches just good enough to lose. 
<laughs> so here's Michael Jordan. Enjoy that first round out in the playoffs. Yeah. Oh, there's Scottie Pippen too, Doug. How's it going? Okay, you got into another round. Good. Good work out of you. Uh, <laughs> so the Soviets uh, played played better than the Americans in the first half. They're up 26-21. They had to ten point lead at one point in the second half, but the Americans came back. And now there's eight seconds left. Soviets are up by one. Doug Collins, the aforementioned Doug Collins, uh, steals a pass. Runs down to the uh, to the other end, slam it, but he's foul, and uh, so he takes his two foul shots and he sinks both. But uh, the Soviets claim they had a timeout in between the first and second shot. It was a huge brouhaha. What do we do? What do we do? Well, they ended up giving Collins both shots. Uh, Americans were now up by one. There were three seconds left, and they said, "Let's yeah, let's reset the time clock to three. And you've got to do you know they figured they weren't going to do it. There's a it, Length of the court pass, it's probably not going to happen. Right. Tom McMillan was a, a big guy, almost seven foot, six, 11 and a half, and he was uh, aggressively challenging it. And this is what I don't understand, Johnny, is that in that particular, now, now Soviets now have a second chance because the clock did run out. The, clock, the horn did buzz after Colin's mm. second shot. So uh, this guy tries to throw it down the court, but he can't. McMillan is aggressively, you know, he's aggressive in his defense. He has to do it, you know, a half court thing. And by the time it gets back, back to the end, they barely have a chance to get something off and it hits off the backboard and, and, and doesn't even hit the rim, I think. And for whatever reason, inexplicably, either the score, the official score or the timekeeper didn't have their stuff together exactly. Right. But for whatever reason, they decided to replay that again. Yeah. And I still don't know what the explanation is. I don't think they ever got a a, a complete explanation um, as to as to why um, it it reminds me somewhat of uh, people may not know this the second half kickoff of Super Bowl one um, had to be re kicked because one of the two two networks covered that first Super Bowl and one of the networks was not back from commercial yet and they hadn't gotten that news they had to do that so I mean it, it seemed to to your point it was something that was not an on the court issue that caused that it was something with the official scorer um, yeah. the clock something, some yes. something like that was it was given as the reason so now the Soviets have their third chance of winning the game with three seconds left and this time supposedly McMillan is doing the same thing he's he's aggressively defending this pass and the ref tells him to step back and McMillan yeah. because it seems like everything was against the Americans in that whole run it was like well I better step back I'm, he worried that he was going to get a technical foul yeah and, of course, the ref says, I didn't tell him to do anything. Well, he steps back. Obviously, the Soviet guy now has a clear shot to a, a length of the court pass. He throws it. The two Americans get tangled up. And the guy, Soviet guy has an unimpeded, uncontested, uncontested yeah. layup to win the game. It's just such a joke. It's just such a sham. It really is. I mean, it's just stupid. Yeah. No, it was, it, it's ridiculous. And, again, I recommend everybody search out the um, – the, um, uh, the documentary, I think it's called Three Seconds from Gold, I believe yeah. is what it's called or something yeah. on that order. And um, it, you you get a lot of the you, you get in depth into that story that, the yeah. you know, the referee, the timekeeper, the Olympic official that was there. It's just one of those. And, you know, there there are a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, that they 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 all got together to uh, to deny the United States this gold medal that they uh, that that they had uh 
yeah, that should have been there. Right. You know, sort of up to that point. And really, when you watch the documentary, you get a little more of a sense of while, you know, there was certainly a lot of unfairness and asking McMillan to back up, which is so obvious. You see him do it in the, and says something to McMillan and McMillan backs up. Um, I believe Tom McMillan, uh, University of Maryland, if I'm not incorrect with that. Um, but, uh, uh, it, it, it there's a little bit of a, just a uh, a three stooges uh, aspect to it where I, I think a lot of people didn't know what was happening. And I think you see in situations like that, Mark, we've seen this in sports before when uh, when people cannot agree on what happened, there's generally a do over. And I think we, we had a little yeah. bit of that. I mean, I think there I think there might have been a little bias against the, the, the U.S. team. And I think it. I mean, I think that's human nature um you know why do people hate the new england patriots after a while because they won all the time so i think if you weren't if you didn't have a a, a dog in the hunt that you know the upset was something that you probably would it, in many people's mind would be better for the sport and there are still yeah. people to this day that will say that this loss was better for international basketball yeah and and that makes sense. And I think the big picture, you could make that argument as well. But it was pretty it was pretty shady. It was pretty dirty. Oh, really oh was. Yeah. yeah. The protest, even there were five panel uh, judges for the protest. And what, what the Americans said is that, listen, there's there's these two separate incidences that happened. One took a, a few seconds. The other took, you know, the by definition, the clock would have run out before even that next one happened. Yeah. And apparently three of the judges were from uh, Soviet bloc countries. Eastern bloc countries. Right. And, you know, it is what it is. So. And the Americans never picked up their silver medal. And they still basically in, I believe, Zurich, Switzerland, which is where um, uh, the Olympic, uh, the International Olympic Committee is, is based. Uh, they still have them waiting for them. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's move on to, uh, you know, the 9th and the 10th of September. This is also on the 9th and the 9th and 10th of U.S. Open were happening. Uh, Billie Jean King won the U.S. Open, and Elon Nastassi, we talked about him in part two, uh, he won the U.S. Open as well. This is uh, Billie Jean's third consecutive major that she won that year. She didn't even uh, play in the Australian Open, right. but she won Wimbledon. She won her only French Open in her entire career, and she won the U.S. Open as well. We'll get to that a little bit later. We're back to the uh, we're back to the Olympics, and the aforementioned Frank Shorter, he won the marathon. He became a, a very famous uh kind of guy at the time and and in a lot of ways johnny i think it opened the at, at least scholars say that it really kind of opened up the uh along with the achievements of other american runners you know the the running boom that happened in yeah. uh, the 1970s and yes that's come and gone a little bit but obviously that's now a cult that's a part of our culture yeah it'd be, it'd be, it, yeah that's and when that really was started with folks like frank shorter yeah, that's and I believe our good friend Jeff Galloway was actually a 72 U.S. Olympian uh, at that point in time. Um, he, was, uh, he was part of that 72 team. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, well done. But yeah, but yeah, you're right. It brought uh, it brought distance running and to to the fore and the jogging craze, which I'm sure you and I remember very, very well. Um, that started then has really continued yeah. and distance. I mean, distance running, you know, uh, God knows I've hosted a lot of marathons in my day. And uh, and, and you've been a part of those as well. Um, it has continued, but you're right. Frank Shorter was, uh, I remember he was ubiquitous on television commercials after that. Everybody yeah. wanted, you know, I think he did car commercials, of course, and, and, and whatnot. So one of the very first, if not the first, certainly the first American distance yeah. running superstar. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. You know, Forrest Gump did the whole running thing. And you, you <laughs> mentioned earlier the ping pong in China. He did that as well. So he's ubiquitous <laughs> as well. All right. Avery Brundage, uh, you know, was the, was the president for his last Olympic Games in 1972. They ended in September 11th and on September 12th, they replaced him. And everyone's very happy about that. And uh, just some, we, he has been mentioned in three or four of our deep dives, and we need to mention him again. All right, Johnny, we're gonna um, we're gonna move to pop culture now. All right, and I know you love you love this show, and I watched the show, The Waltons <laughs> debuted. I watched it last night. I watched an episode of The Waltons. Wow, that's amazing. I did. You love The Waltons. I do. I do. It is a really um, it, that is a very nostalgic thing for me. Um, uh, and I know, uh, Steve Prefontaine and Dave Waddle is Lenny's chiming in with, uh, with runners. I would go with Abby Bikila. It was the very first known runner, but yeah, I still will argue shorter was the first superstar, but the Waltons. Yeah, because, um, it, it, it took place in Virginia and I grew up in Northern Virginia and it was the first television show that I'd ever been presented with. Um, where the where it took place and they talked about Richmond and Charlottesville and towns that I knew sure, and I'd been sure, to. Sure. And in fact, we took my mother was huge for day trips. We never traveled when I was a kid, never went overnight anywhere. But she loved to do a day trip. And we went to Schuyler, Virginia, which is the home of Earl Hamner, who was the uh, creator of the Waltons. Um, based on a novel called Spencer's Mountain, the movie with Henry Fonda that came out before that. Um, and uh, we, we saw the, the house that Earl Hamner grew up in, which was the Waltons, you know, what it was based on. So, yeah, it's a, I, I still uh, my wife makes fun of me uh, when it comes on and it's in heavy rotation on some channel. I don't know which one it is, but it pops up and it's an episode that I don't remember or I haven't seen or I remember and I loved. I stick with it. I watched the Waltons thanksgiving special just the other day and jody watched it with me and it takes place um over the over a weekend in 1963 thanksgiving weekend in 1963 mark so you'd even dial into that one sure for a bit. i think i would yep also that september uh premiering for the first time the tv show mash another huge part of my youth no doubt about it obviously the movie mash had uh come out in 1970 and Larry Gelbart was a part of that, and he was also a part of this. Larry Gelbart, uh, a great writer, I believe, part of the uh, the Sid Caesar gang. Your show of shows, Gelbart was a writer for that, along with, like, with Woody yeah. Allen and a bunch of Neil people. Simon. And yeah, yeah. I think Mel Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner probably had a part of that. And Larry Gelbart also wrote the musical "Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum." Genius. Uh, it was based on a book that then became a movie, then became a TV show. What's interesting about this it was very groundbreaking because it was it was a comedy. You see some of those like you know wacky kind of scenes there in the first season, you know uh, between Hawkeye and uh, and and also there's Hot Lips and Frank and Trapper John, Trapper John, and it's all kind of fun and games. But uh, you know, and it was a it was there was a lot of uh, satire involved in terms of. Uh, sort of an anti-war sentiment because of Vietnam yeah. War was obviously it really wasn't because the movie itself was an anti-Vietnam movie it, I mean, it really was and it was yeah. you know it was a, from a war that was just 10 years prior that sort of had the same earmarks as right. Vietnam uh you know a war in Asia so what are you going to do so uh but I really find it fascinating because Larry Gelbart the the showrunner if you will for that day and time uh you know really wanted CBS executives to lose the laugh track 
And the way he explained it, John, and it makes perfect sense to me, he says, listen, some of our other successful shows at the time, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, those were filmed in front of a live audience. Yes, a laugh were. track makes perfect sense if you want to if you want to bolster what the audience is is watching at the time. And you you know that's what it was. It wasn't just what the audience was. Uh, it wasn't just their natural sound. They obviously added a laugh track. Sure. But he said this is in Korea, right during a war. <laughs> who's watching? Who's who's sitting around? Like you know the right. stories they have about the Civil War when it first started and all the picnics. They had to right. watch the right. quaint right. battles. You, you know, uh, you know he, he had a great point. So he, they but, had to compromise, and they couldn't have a laugh track during the operate. You know, during right? The that was it. That was the great compromise. And I didn't know that until many years later. And I think it was an Alan Alda interview where I said, saw where they basically said, "All right, we're not going to use the laugh track in the operating scenes, but they had them for the other scenes." And in all in all, actually, it, it I think it worked pretty well in that respect. Yeah, it did. Um, and then but, they sort uh, of muted it. Once Gelbart left, they sort of muted the laugh track. It got a little bit more dramatic. The show's got yeah. a little bit more dramatic. I thought a little too precious at times. Personally, I felt that way. But, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, obviously a groundbreaking show and an amazing show. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Hawkeye Pierce, I mean, that that character resides among the Archie Bunker, uh, Lucy and Desi, among the great, characters yeah. in in television history and alan yeah. aldis a guy that i have a lot of respect for and i think I you know agree. you and i often talk about uh the uh in it, people may who listening may uh, not realize this but we consider ourselves comic performers um he that character of hawkeye pierce that smart ass character yeah. informed a lot of of my humor sure you know i say david letterman later is probably the the greatest influence uh, on me, but um, and but Carol Burnett show and a lot of things, but Hawkeye Pierce. I mean, he just that sort of ironic, smart yeah. ass. Uh, no, character. Uh, I can see that. I can see one that. of the greats. I uh, was not influenced by that. My influences uh, ran toward the Tim Conways of yeah. the world. Yeah, and uh, maybe a little Johnny Carson as well. But uh, yeah, not not like the Hawkeye Pierce, which was a iconic character, and it was all that was all CBS. You had Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, Carol Burnett, you know, the whole show there, you had obviously Archie Bunker, to your point, you had uh, Hawkeye Pierce. It was a, a great run. And it was all on a Saturday night, John. Everyone stayed in yeah. on Saturday nights back in that day. Right. It's just very interesting. Which is why by the end of MASH, which ended in 1983, I'd kind of stopped watching because I turned 16 in 1980. And by that time, you know, my Saturday nights were, yeah. you know, full of me going out and trying to have a social life and being reminded again and again and again what an enormous loser i was in high school well there it is but yeah, should have stayed home and watched mash you probably should have and then just uh yeah just avoided all that pain ah that i still i'm still paying for it oh, you of know. course you're carrying that around still oh absolutely I mean, how could you not johnny there i mean you were scarred back then scarred. oh my god high school good lord all right september 18th here we go first black umpire in major league baseball history art williams uh dodgers padres game and how, how about that? 1972. It, it always amazes me, Johnny, uh, in terms of uh, integration milestones, how how late they are yeah. as a rule. It's yeah. just pretty yeah. remarkable for crying out loud. 
It really it's is. 1972. You know, you're eight years past the civil rights legislation. You're, you know, you're you're already four years past the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. You're 25 years past the integration of the damn sport, for God's sake. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's yeah. just bizarre. It's just hugely bizarre. We'll move on to the NFL. Uh, September 24th, Joe Namath threw six touchdowns in a game that was unheard of back in those days. Uh, threw him against the Baltimore Colts. I think they won the game 44 to 40. Um, Joe Namath had a very good year in 1972 for his standards and for the National Football League standards. Uh, he led the league that year, John, with 2,800 yards passing, led the league with 19 touchdowns passing. He also threw 21 interceptions, and it's the last year he would make the Pro Bowl. You look at Joe Namath's stats, and yes, he changed the game. You could argue that he changed the game. I would argue that Weeb Eubank had as much to do with it as Joe Namath did. But um, Joe Namath changed it in terms of the perception, in terms, and that's all that matters, isn't it? It's perception is. Yeah, real. and I believe you know, to the point that you're you're getting to here, he's under 500 quarterback or, or around 500, I think at best. Um, his interception to touchdown ratio is bad. There's yeah. no other way to say it. It is he, not good. He led part, the league in interceptions four years. Part of part of uh, you know part of that was that you know he was that classic gunslinger before we really saw those guys, um, and he went out and chucked the ball around a lot. So you know it, it was a risk reward sort of a thing. Um, but he, he was you know he's in there to your point that victory in Super Bowl three, which really had as much to do with later success in. Uh, of the NFL uh, got him in there. Now as a talent, I don't think anyone would ever argue against the fact Joe Namath was a hall of fame talent, but he did not always perform to a hall of fame level. I, I, there's no doubt about that. And he's also no, one of the I nicest mean, guys you will yeah. ever meet. Yeah. One of my We've favorite had. interviews ever. Yep, we've had a great time with him uh, over the years. There's no doubt about it. All right, we're going to go from the NFL. We're going to move now to Major League Baseball on this date. Uh, well, not on this date, September 30th, 1972. Roberto Clemente got his 3,000th hit. Uh, it was the last hit he uh, was to have. We'll get to that story a little bit later. But boy, oh boy, what a career Roberto Clemente had. There he is on second base, tipping his hat to the crowd after his 3,000th hit. He had three more games. They didn't. Uh, he didn't get a hit, but they did make the playoffs. Uh, they were in a, a part of a three-year run making the playoffs. They had just won the World Series the year before, and Roberto Clemente, uh, one of the all-timers. And people don't realize Clemente, uh, we, we'll talk about 1960 at the end of this show as we move into the new uh, our new show and what we're doing, but Clemente was on that 60 team oh, that yeah. won the World Series as well. Yeah. But, you know, Pittsburgh, it's such a funny uh, – People now look back and go, oh, he played for the Pirates and he won two World Series. Well, they won in 1960 and then literally disappear. Yeah. Um, until I think 69, they start there's They start to come back in 69 um, and uh, put put together a good a team, win it again in 71. Then 72, he gets his 3000th and he's gone. But he toiled in obscurity for a very long time. But one of the great singles hitters of all time and one of the great arms outfield arms ever in yeah baseball. there's no doubt we've talked about this many many times i was at a game in candlestick park where uh i had uh seats down the first baseline pretty deep so i was you know i saw him right in, in right field he was sort of right in front of me yep. and i saw him gun down someone uh deep in the right Crazy field corner on a line drive to third base and and i just have never seen any throw like that 
the sense. No, and everybody will tell you, I mean, he was just such a fierce competitor was uh, was Clemente uh, that he used to throw guys out who take too big a turn around first yeah. because his arm was so good that they're like, well, he's, you know, he can't, I'll get back to the base. And, and, and he didn't, he was, he was just one of the all time greats without a doubt. And one of the, one of the first baseballs players of record that I remember because I told you 72 was the first series. I really paid it. 71 a little bit because Baltimore was in it and they were the local team. Yeah. But I had uh, older friends around the neighborhood who played baseball and everybody wanted their team to be called the pirates. And they all wanted to be, you know, Clemente because he was just sure. such, such a great player. One of the, one of the all time bad. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's September 30th. Uh, the season's wrapping up uh, a few days later, and the playoffs or, or the pennant races really weren't that interesting in the National League. The Pirates sort of uh, one going away, the Reds sort of one going away. But in the AL, you had a couple of decent races. Uh, the A's actually, uh, even though they had won the division the, the prior year, they were only up by two games mid-September. And then, of course, the the uh, the Red Sox and the Tigers. Yeah. The Tigers, oh by the way, coached by Billy Martin. Yeah, would turn them around the year before that, which is what like he does. He turned around the Twins in 1969. It's what he, it's what he does. If you want a manager, we've talked about this about Billy Martin. You want a guy to take a team that's won 68 games and get them to the playoffs the He's very next year. Billy, Billy Martin's your guy. If you want a manager to sustain that success, not your guy. He's not. He's not your guy. He wears on people, but he did. I mean, he play baseball players will tell you that, you know, he he had that sort of I'm I'm the common enemy sort of way to uh, to manage. And that works for some teams. If you know, you can get guys focused on playing their hardest to to prove to him that they are uh as good as he thought they were, which really what Martin would say it came down to is that that's how he got the best out of people. And yeah. uh, that was one of the early uh, or one of early evidence of that. And we've we've seen this and this is uh, this is a quick little, I don't know, an example about maybe defending Billy Martin to some degree. But because he has such a you know a bad reputation for sort of screwing things up that that were there that didn't need to be screwed up and so forth and so on, a heavy drinker, the whole bit. But he really was a ball player. He was really an old school ball player. And there's a story that we're going to share a little bit later that just proves that, that his whole world was that. So, you know, when he he was out of baseball, it was just a matter of time before he either drank himself or got in a, you know, an accident, which actually claimed his life just a couple of years after he was out of the game. And by the way, people who are like, he'd screw everything up, who will bring up the Yankees. uh, Don't we have enough evidence that George Steinbrenner had as big a part in screwing everything up as Billy Martin did that period of time, for God's sake? And Billy Martin won a World Series and had the team set up to win another World Series in 78 and was the only manager that had any success with that team in the 80s, for crying out loud. So, I mean, Billy Martin was a phenomenal manager. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and we'll get to a story about it. He's just a ball player. That's all he knew was was playing ball, the travel, the camaraderie, everything about it. So these races are, are, are wrapped up. But but to the last day of the season, basically, Detroit and Boston are at it. Now, Boston has a game and a half lead with four games to play. Now, remember, the games that these uh, teams are playing are uneven. They're uneven because of the strike that happened at the beginning of the year. There were, right. you know, some teams miss six, some teams miss seven, some teams miss eight games. So now Boston has a one and a half game lead with four games to play. They lose to Mil- they lose to Milwaukee, and now they're a half game up, and and they play the Tigers. And the Tigers go ahead and and win the first two games. So now they're a game and a half up with one game to play, and Boston wins the final game. So Detroit 
goes to the postseason with a half-game lead over the Red Sox, and they actually played one more game. <laughs> the Tigers lost six games to the strike. The Red Sox lost seven. Just unbelievable. You unbelievable. And how, how, but, you know, again, how, how that would never happen today. There's no, no way they would allow that to happen. They would never, ever do that, but they did. And, and that was back know, in the day when you played doubleheaders. I'm surprised they didn't play a tripleheader, for God's sake, to get the extra game in. Well, you know what they, yeah, they didn't want to do, they didn't want to do anything. That was almost the owner saying, we're not going to play extra games. We're not going to do that. We're just well, going to pay you, people. You, yeah, you're going to have to take you know, six games less salary, whatever it is, seven games less salary. So at the end of the season, Steve Carlton, we brought him up over and over again this <laughs> this year. He won his 27th game for a team that won 59. He obviously won the Cy Young Award going away, but it just has to be mentioned. Right. It has to be mentioned. He won 27 out of the 59 games. Right. All right. So, so we're set up for baseball. We're set up for the postseason. But a quick look into the NFL right now, Johnny, because right September, a couple of games have been played already. And uh, and this team, the Miami Dolphins, they went 2-0 and in September, just in case anyone cared at all. The defending AFC champions. The defending AFC champions go 2-0. and All right, so now we are ready for the, uh, for the MLB postseason coming up at, uh, well, October 1st, October, let's say it. Uh, both the NL and the AL series, they go five games each. <laughs> and that's when they were five games for people who are listening. <laughs> that's when they were five games. Yes. So three or two. Uh, yeah, uh, Detroit and Oakland uh, was a hard fought series. All uh, four of the five games were, uh, I'm sorry, three games were decided by one run, including game five. Game two, you see Burke Campaneers there throwing his bat. He threw his bat as hard as he could at the pitcher, mm-hmm. Laren Legro. And in game five, all right, and this this is a pitcher's duel, okay? The A's, I think, hit 224. The Tigers hit below the Mendoza line. Mm-hmm. This is a pitcher's series. Blue Moon Odom, a classic pitcher for the A's, starts, pitches five innings, and the last four innings are pitched by Vita Blue, closing the game out, and uh, and he gets the save. And now, now we know in Game Five, the uh, the A's are down, and we see this picture too with uh, with Reggie sliding in right there, and you see the look of his uh, on his face. Game Five, all right, this is the deciding game of the series. The Tigers are up by one. Reggie works a walk, he steals second, and he gets to third base on a fly ball, and then. Someone else walks, and Dick Williams, who we love, who was the manager yep. of that 72 team, orders a double steal, right? Oh. So then what, the guy from first is going to second, and here comes Reggie trying to steal home, and, he, and he's safe, but he tears his hamstring. It's not just a pull. He tears his hamstring. He's out for the entire World Series. And here's where the Billy Martin ballplayer story uh, comes in, is that Billy Martin, after the game, went to the Oakland clubhouse, seeking out Reggie Jackson, telling him how sorry he was. Because uh, he's such a good ball player, and then he's going to miss the World Series. And it's so ironic because we know about the future relationship <laughs> with Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson. But there he is, a manager from the opposing team, and he just knows there's a ball player. Just gives yeah. everything he can out on the field. Made a great play to tie the game, stealing home, and now he's out. I, I don't know. I just I just think that kind of stuff is is pretty cool and needs to be you know. Needs to be part of the Billy Martin story as well. Absolutely, yeah. We just, it's, you know. So the A's win the first time in 41 years. Right. Died while drunk driving comes up first. And it's like, uh, you know, and argued with George Steinbrenner. There's a lot to the Billy Martin story. A lot.
And to your point, he could take this year's he could take this year's Baltimore Orioles, by the way, I want to jump into this year, who have been, it has been determined, have a zero percent chance of getting to the playoffs, by the way. There it is. Zero. They have a zero percent chance. I honestly, I want to put a hundred bucks on it because I, I mean, what what what, what, what what must the odds be? Because uh, I don't have a hundred dollars anymore. Uh, but uh, he uh, he could take that team and he'd probably win eighty two games. Frankly. Yeah, yeah. All right. So this is a classic series. The AL, the NL is just as classic. It goes five games. It goes the whole way. All right. This is the between the Pirates and the Reds. The Pirates uh, were on just when they're third consecutive division title. They had won the World Series the year before. The Reds had been to the World Series in 1970, fell off a little bit in 71. Now we're back in 1972. And this series went down to five to the final game. The, the Pirates were up two to one. Going into game four, Reds win this one. And then the uh, game five, Pirates are up three to two. Going into the bottom of the ninth. And the Reds score two runs, including a home run by Johnny Bench to win it. So pretty classic playoffs heading into the World Series. And of course, in the World Series, we know you've done a deep dive on the A's. I've done a deep dive on the 1970s Reds. Uh, the A's won this World Series yeah. uh, with uh, Gene Tennis, as you see in the- My favorite player on there. that team. Yeah, was and he, was the, he was the MVP for that. See Johnny Bench there, play at the plate, Pete Rose. A classic World Series goes seven games as well. And check this out. This is uh, – they, without Reggie, by the way, the A's win this, four games to three. Mm-hmm. Both teams hit exactly 209. <laughs> now, I told you, they held Detroit to 196 right. in the playoffs. So the Oakland pitchers held the opposition during 12 games of the postseason to a 204 batting average. And six out of these seven games were decided by one run. This well, postseason in 1972 could not be more classic, could not be more close. No, and look at that A's pitching staff. To, you mentioned Vida Blue, Blue Moon Odom, Catfish Hunter, uh, Ken Holtzman, and yeah. uh, Raleigh Fingers. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, forget about you, it. The luxury tax you'd be paying on that pitching staff today would make it almost impossible to keep them unless you're like the friggin' Dodgers. All right, so let, let, me, let me take a look at something right now. Let's see where we are. Okay, we're at 101, and the date we're about to go into right now is October 16th. So we're about right. halfway through the show. All right, pick up the pace. Keep pushing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, here we go. We're not talking about the Stones, but we will talk about CCR. They broke up on this day on October 16th in uh, 1972. Best American and- singles band of all time. There they are. Uh, I, I love CCR. I think a lot of people do. And they were, you know, they had, I think, what was it, three years, maybe 69, 70, 71, where they had a lot of hits. Nothing, I think, went to number one. A lot went to number two. And uh, those songs still hold up. Best, you know, I, I will say it. I think they're later. the best singles band of all time. I think the singles that they released, the albums, they have great albums, too. Green River's a terrific album. But um, as far as uh, Willing the Poor Boys as well. But as a singles band, uh, yeah. I, th- I put them up there with other great singles bands. I mean, I think Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers made great albums, but I think they were a great singles band as well. I, I think Credence is right, right there. So uh, Chuck Berry, the next day, by the way, <laughs> his only so number. His so only, wrong. I know. It's his horrible. only number one hit. And it was a fluke that it even got out there. because and it's it was, a novelty song. It's not even a, you know, one of the, he's written some of the great songs. Nadine, uh, one of the great songs of all time. Certainly Johnny Be Good. It's a novelty Maybelline, song. Maybelline, yeah. It's, it's Maybelline, yeah. 
unbelievable. It's a novelty song. He played it live. He has the women say something about who's going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, grab, grab my, and then the men say ding-a-ling. It's just this, you know, just out there over the top song. He's opening for Pink Floyd. They happen to be filming that. So they have the recording and they make it a single and it's his only number one hit. Unbelievable. There's a, there's a, there's a show, Chuck Berry and Pink Floyd. Yeah. And they used to have some great shows. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. That's All right, you're, you're going to love this, John. I know it's one of your favorite shows. Pippin <sighs> opens October 23rd in 1972. I, I don't love it. I don't <sighs> love it, but I know it's you do. Such so a, it's such a nostalgic it's one for, for me. There's John Rubenstein and, and Ben Vereen. You're the great Ben Vereen. Uh, yep. Corner of the Sky. Um, yeah, great song. Morning Glow. It, it, it's just, a, it's, it is a very dated show. It's very 70s. Um, but it's, it's just, it's one of my favorites, uh, and I will fight you to the death to argue with a long Camelot. Uh, I will fight you to the death that it yeah. is a terrific show. And Ben yeah. Vereen, yeah. Talk about no, ben unbelievable yeah. in an era of, um, uh, a lot of, uh, variety shows, you know, Ben Vereen was literally on everyone's variety show every week. Yeah, just just remarkable, remarkable. And then and then he turns in a great turn at uh, in Roots. You know, about five years later, Chicken George. Uh, he was unbelievable, and it was like, wow, this guy, this guy He's, is the real deal, a true you know, triple threat, a true triple threat. One of the best of all time entertainers. All right, so we leave the pop culture world. We go back to Major League Baseball, and this is sort of just for me because I don't really. I mean, I talked about Steve Carlton winning the NL Cy Young, but Gaylord Perry wins the AL Cy Young. The, the, the Giants traded him that year, okay? They traded Willie Mays that year, and he hits a home run against him in the game. The Giants trade him, and you know he traded Gaylord Perry for, John? You know this. Sudden Sam McDowell. Suddenly Sam. Suddenly Sam McDowell. Yep. Who yep. evidently blew out his shoulder, won five games for them because they were coveting a left-handed starter. And here goes Gaylord Perry, who, oh, by the way, I don't know, eight, nine years later, wins the Cy Young for San Diego. Is the first pitcher to win a Cy Young in both leagues, and that record stood for twenty plus years before Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, and uh, Roy Halladay, and then a, a bunch of others uh, did the same thing. But I mean, it stood for a long, long yeah. time. Now it was tougher back then because guys stayed with teams longer. Obviously, right. the reserve clause was you guys didn't move around as much, so it's amazing. But yeah, he is. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Derek Abbott in our football shows always talks about Patrick Mahomes being a unicorn. Because there's just you can't compare him to anybody. Gaylord Perry's the same way in my mind. He is a baseball player that is the word incomparable comes to mind because of the longevity, uh, yes. how he did it, and he he just w- was remarkable and one of the great characters in the history of baseball. But boy, uh, yeah, as a, as a fan, you you never want uh, you know to trade the guy away. Who wins the Cy Young? It happened all the time, John. Yeah. The Giants traded away Orlando Cepeda. The next year, he wins the MVP. Yeah. They traded away Matty Alou. The next year, he wins the batting title. Yeah. It's just over way, and over again. They traded away Gary Maddox before he was a star. They traded away Gary Matthews. They traded away Bobby Bonds when he was at his peak. Yeah. Ridiculous. Okay. I should mention this, Mark. I read earlier today that uh, Buster Posey looking good in Giants camp. Um, though uh, in an in an effort to not get injured again, Posey will now lo- no longer be required while catching to actually catch the ball. So that's that's the so new pass rule. Pass balls are allowed. Um, pass balls you can't run on him. It's just you know Buster Buster just bats and tries to block the plate. 
um, from, from the balls getting through. He doesn't have to block plate clearly if a runner's coming through. They're they automatically that. out. Any runner that gets to third, if sure. there's a play at the plate, is automatically out. It's the Buster Posey rule. Sure, I get it. All right, let's go back to the NFL in October. Miami Dolphins, Johnny, were 5-0, and oh, and there's Earl Morrill, who took over for Bob Greasy in this month in October. Game five, Bob Greasy broke his leg, I believe. And Yeah, he did. And here comes Earl Morrill, and he comes in there, and he uh, is the starting quarterback, and they continue to be undefeated. So now through October, this team is 7-0. and oh. so, so are now, we at the end of – are we moved into – are we about to move into November? Because uh, We are. We're all right, i got to tell the story. Very good. i, I got to tell the story. We're about to move into November, and you told me to move it along. So I know. I'm just – I, I you don't have to move it along. I have, What do I have to do? I have nothing. I have nothing to do at this That's point. True. I'm going to binge watch either uh, um, Lakefront – uh, house renovation, which is our new or modern family. So I have nothing to do. So I will tell this story. I don't even know if my, uh, if my best friend growing up, Steve Carricker is still listening, but he was on, he, he figures in this story in 1972, as mentioned, uh, I played uh, boys club football for the first time. And uh, so even number of people in my neighborhood, uh, Lois Dale in Springfield, Virginia, number of us on that team. Uh, so we would carpool to get Steve's here. Oh God, a number of us carpool uh, together uh, to go to to go to uh, to games. Myself, Steve, and there there was another kid, and I'm not going to mention his name because I, I don't I I don't know what's become of him, and God forbid because I don't want to. Steve might know. Steve might know. Steve knows his name. I know his name. We all know his name, Mark. We're Does just Steve not going to know say what's it. become of him. I don't know if Steve knows. Oh, what's become okay. Of him. So you I, know I what's become of him, and is what I'm getting. Oh no, I don't know. We, we don't know what's become of them. Uh, it's been it's been a long time, but uh, so it was uh, it was Halloween, and we had practice. We had football practice. Um, so we were carpooling, and it was uh, Steve's dad, I believe, uh, Jerry Carricker, uh, who was who was driving, and we so they picked me up, and then we headed over to this other kid's house to pick him up, and his. I think I, I was his dad. Steve, help me out here. Uh, and he has no idea what he's doing. Steve does not know what has happened to, to this guy. Um, uh, he, his dad or his mom came to the door and said, so-and-so is not going to be at practice tonight. And you really, there, there's no need to go beyond that if you're a parent. You know, he's not going to make it to practice tonight. But he felt, felt necessary to fill in the reason why. And the reason why was because this kid's sister... Well, the kid couldn't find his jock strap and cup because his sister had borrowed it for a Halloween mask. Thanks. I only bring it up because, well, because it's 1972 and also because the weekend's performance, which was uh, during the Super Bowl, there were there were those masked guys and there was a reason for that. And I'm not going to get into that whole controversy, but people said, oh, my God, it looks like they're wearing jock, strap, jock straps on their face. And if they were. Then this was stolen from this kid on my eight-year-old football team's sister. And uh, my my mother to this day, who, you know, my mom's 86 years old. There are things she doesn't remember. Uh, she's doing great, but things she doesn't remember. But if you bring this story up, my mother will laugh herself into a coughing fit remembering this story. So that was my Halloween 1972 story. I'm also pretty certain Steve can back me up on this, that uh, we went to a practice and then we trick-or-treated in our boys club football uh, practice uniforms. Pretty Aww. sure we did that. 
Pretty sure uh, we did I bet that. You felt very cool. I bet you felt very, very cool doing Steve's that. Steve's mom, uh, uh, the lovely Nancy Carricker, uh, my my second mom. His parents were essentially my, my second parents. Uh, she remembers that as well. That is just one of those stories where um, you know it's you you don't forget when somebody's sister wore their jockstrap as a mask. Uh, yeah, we we don't know the condition of the jockstrap, uh, but we assume it was washed. Well, you didn't know him. Wait, Steve, Steve, help me out here. Knowing who it is, Steve and I know who it is. The over-under percentage-wise on whether it was washed. 40-60 washed? Was he the child that always come with dirty jeans? You could tell they hadn't been washed. You you told me a story about a kid you could tell his parents never washed. Yeah, there were obviously, and that's very sad. No, it was just, uh, they were just, you know, they were a bit scattered. It was sort of a scattered family. A little scattered. Uh, I don't think they were dirty family. They were just, you know, a little bit, a little bit scattered. Yeah. A lot on their plate, you know, kind of, kind of a weird sister to deal with. Let's put it that way. And obviously maybe a weird son as well to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were different. So they were a little bit different. So there it is. So they were, hell, today's world, they they would be perfectly. uh, She could be the weekend's choreographer now. We don't know. We don't know. We We should probably try to find that out. That absolutely. We'll get on that right away. Next show, we will we will let you know what we have in, what our investigative report has come to the conclusion of. All right. So we're Thanks, now Steve, in November. By the way, for reminding We've me moved of that. on from uh, October 31st and trick-or-treating and the jockstrap cup mask worn by the sister. Yeah, we never got did we ever get to the bottom of whether she used the cup as well, or was it just simply the jockstrap? Because I think those are the answers that we need. America needs those answers. We will get to those. We will have those for you in our next show. We'll tell you what the, what the title is of our next show. We're rebranding, folks. We're rebranding. We're, we're rebranding. And, and, and not much is going to change, really. Not much, really. Com- certainly compared to what we've been doing with 1972 and even 68 and 41 prior to that. But, uh, but yes, there's some significant changes. So let's move on. November 7th is uh, Election Day, Johnny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Richard Nixon wins in a landslide. And this is a landslide. Look at the map. One All state. but one state in the District of Columbia, if I'm not incorrect, right? Massachusetts. Yes, it was. Uh, what was the it was a, a difference of 503 electoral votes. All right. <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was something like 520 to 17. It was the largest electoral difference up to that time. It was eclipsed only 12 years later in the 1984 election with Ronald Reagan. Uh, but boy, oh boy, I, I will say, I mean, th- those, those were two of the worst landslides in the history of this country. And yeah. we were alive for both of them vote. Well, actually I did not vote in 84 because it was, there was no point. That was the one election I did not vote in. That was my first election why, that I voted in. Um, and I was so angry at Mondale. My first one was 80. And, uh, but I will say that McGovern yeah. Mondale and Dukakis have to be three of the worst presidential candidates in history. Not to say they're bad guys, not to say no. their policies were bad, not no. to say their careers prior to that were unsuccessful. George Montgomery is a hero of progressive Democrats. And, and really, I mean, yeah, 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 it, it didn't it didn't end well. <laughs> it, it did not. All right. But it's amazing because during this year, the Watergate story kept going and there's Woodward and Bernstein. And then uh, that's them uh, in the upper right. Uh, that's them talking to Ben Bradley as well. And there's Nixon being very happy about the landslide. But then there's the scandal the whole time. And and during this time, as a matter of fact, I just saw that movie again, All the President's Men. I just it's saw so it. It's so great. It's such a great It movie. is unbelievable 
These are the headlines that appear nowhere else. Because after a while, even the New York Times, who had a, had a rivalry with the Washington Post, even they sort of sort of backed off a little bit because the public didn't care. The public didn't even know right. about Watergate. They didn't care at all. But there's a story about the 25,000 earmarked uh, for his campaign that was deposited in the bank account of one of the Watergate bank robbers. I mean, just that in and of itself should, should be enough. These are not smart guys. Attorney Great General. Great Hal Albrook in that movie. Oh, I know. He's phenomenal. They found out he controlled a secret fund to finance intelligence gathering against the Democrats that had been happening for months and months prior to Watergate, as yep. we know. Uh, when Carl Bernstein asked Mitchell for comment, you know, Mitchell threatens both Bernstein and Catherine Graham. He, he, what's what's the quote, Johnny? About she's going to get she, she'll find her tit in a ringer. Tit in a ringer. Yeah, that was it. The great the great John Mitchell, one of the all time immoral. Oh yeah, that guy. Stories and that all of guy. just just crazy shit. And it's it's funny, you know, in in a in a 24-7-365 news cycle, Mark, this story would have just oh. you know, Fox would have ignored it, but everyone else, it would have just been an enormous, enormous story. Um, but you're right about the slow burn. And I think I told you uh, about uh, a number of uh about a year or so ago, I found a book on um, on Amazon that I have on my Kindle, which is basically all of the Watergate stories from the very first first story to the break in That's all fun. the way to the resignation. And it, it's remarkable how it, it, it shows one of the things that I think we're missing today when, in television journalism is we see news gathering. We don't necessarily see news stories. And then it, it was it was a slow build and they had to brick by brick build this and you could not arrive and and they didn't they they really didn't know what the end result of this was they they knew something was going on but i don't think going into this woodward and bernstein would both say they never thought it would get to nixon i think they probably thought it might get to some people around him and there would be a, a story there but um it was it, it's remarkable the slow build because we're almost you were just a little less than two years before Nixon resigns at this point. Yeah, it's amazing. During during the election, these yeah. stories were out there about the $25,000 fund. And it didn't matter. That, that, about John Mitchell. One, one I About the FBI having connections with Nixon aides. Uh, about the Dirty Tricks campaign uh, orchestrated uh, by Donald Segretti. <laughs> Has a great scene in the movie. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the way they just, you know, totally... Well, the, the word is rat fucked. Uh, rat Edmund fucking. Musk, that's what they Ed, called it. Yeah. Edmund Muskie. Those were uh, their dirty tricks. Those were the dirty tricks that they played. Tricks paid for by the committee to reelect the president. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, the irony is too much that he won by such a great margin. And then, you know, I think days, may, maybe not even by the time he was inaugurated, the trial started. And then uh, at, at some point, James McCord had a, had a letter that he wrote to say who else was involved that was read by Judge Sirica and the mm -hmm. whole thing. It was just a matter of time at that point in time. But it was also, a lot of time. It was a lot of time. It moved, people, it moved so slowly it, in those it, days. And, and we've talked about that summer of 73. I was 12 years old and I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house and she had a pool and normally would hang out outside and, you know, enjoy the pool. And I was inside every single day yeah. watching those, watching that show. It oh was yeah, the, the greatest show I ever seen with Sam Irvin and stuff conducted and, by Sam Irvin, and then of course John Dean comes. Yeah, 
And, 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 and for me, realize, you know, my dad worked at the White House. I'd met Richard Nixon at that point as a kid. And uh, we had the Washington Post delivered to our house every morning. So that was the, you know, that was the, that's the newspaper of record in my house. So, yeah, it, uh, it was for people who were, it, it, you know, I, I feel like a relatively young man, but it seems like a long time ago how quaint the, that, that that seems looking back at it now. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. There's no doubt about that. All right. So not only that, there was, you know, it was election day. And in that election, Joe Biden won his very first election, John. And it was for the U.S. Senate. Yep. That was 1972. Got reelected six times. <laughs> yep. I re I rewatch. I, I told you, I, I, told you I sometimes I sometimes when I'm trying to get to sleep, I listen to like old news reports and sometimes it's election night. And I uh, I ended up listening to election night 1972. And in the midst of the other stories, they come in. And at that time, they talk about, you know, in a, in a big surprise in Delaware, this relative unknown beats uh, Boggs was the senator's name from um uh, yeah. Not to be confused with Hale Boggs. Who's, J. Caleb Boggs. Yeah, and he'd been there. He was on, what, three-term senator yeah, at that he was, point? He was a long-time incumbent, like they all seem to be. Huge upset. Huge upset for Joe Biden. But when yeah. you think about that, he has been a force in national politics for that long. Yeah, for 50 years. For 50 years. It's Amazing. unbelievable. It really is. He won by 3,000 votes, and <laughs> it was his first ever election win. I, well, he won like a council. He was a city council. Yeah. Uh, Apparently Boggs got on the phone and just uh, to the attorney general was like, find me 3,001 votes. Damn it. There's no way Sleepy Joe beat me. It's odd. It's odd that he coined that phrase way back then. It is and, odd. And George odd that he had the same he had the same uh, phone call. George, George, George McGovern, George McGovern was, on a, was on a conference call I with the attorney generals votes. of 49 states saying, get me 7 billion votes. I need 7 billion votes. <laughs> all right. So that's November 7th. We're, we're going to skip all the way to November 21st. Uh, Carlton Fisk wins Rookie of the Year. And the reason I bring this up, John Matlock does in the, in the NL. But in the AL, Johnny, this is it in terms of the current Hall of Famers who are also Rookie of the Year. Rod Carew, uh, Cal Ripken Jr., Eddie Murray, Derek Jeter. Now, Ichiro and Trout will both get in, and they were both Rookies of the Year. But that's not that many Rookies of the Year that have a Hall of Fame career. No, and they're all American leaguers. Well, no, this no. I'm I'm saying in the American League, there's actually more in the National League. Oh, okay, that is the American. Okay, so yeah, yeah that's, that's not the, a lot. That's the point. It's the American. Like the, when when you win Rookie of the Year in the American League, more than likely you're not going to have a Hall of Fame. No, it's 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 the uh, Grammy equivalent of Best New Artist. Yeah, if you win Best New Artist in the Grammy, your next album is going to tank. Yeah, so there it is. So it's Carew, Murray. I know Carew's your favorite player, and then there's Ripken, who's your least favorite player. Jeter, who you don't care for because he's a Yankee, yeah. and Eddie Murray, who I'm sure you love because he was an Oriole. So, I do uh, Eddie Murray. So it's a nice balance. And um, I love Carlton Fisk, too, by the way. So. Yeah, Carlton Fisk, this day. So November 29th, back to pop culture. I guess you could call it that. This dude, Nolan Bushnell, releases Pong. It's the first commercially successful video game. Yet another first, John Pelkey, in 1972. He invented it in Sunnyvale, California, a mere miles. It's a few miles from where I was growing up, going to school. My dad, as a matter of fact, was a teacher at Sunnyvale High. He was a dean of students at Sunnyvale High. And uh, in that same district, he became a vice principal as well, Fremont High School, Sunnyvale. 
I remember it's when cool. all this was happening, and I had no idea. And I, I remember when Pong. We had a uh, we had a place in Springfield Mall, which is where you know where we'd go and hang out, indoor mall. That's no longer there. They've changed it into an, like an outdoor mall. I'm not sure why we had to go through all of that, but um, I, there was a place called Time Out, which was the it was the arcade, you know, pinball machines and the such. I remember when Pong, when the first Pong game showed up there, and it was probably yeah. a couple of years after this for us, probably 74, 75, maybe that we started to see it, and people would gather around to watch people play Pong. And 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 it and, and it was like a pool table in a in a bar with a small pool table where you're putting the quarters on it, you know. And that's on, I'm next. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. I remember playing that. I I, I remember. Oh thinking, my god! Wow, this is unbelievable. How can this be? This is an amazing thing. So yeah, Sunnyvale, California, was essentially the beginning of Silicon Valley. For all those folks out there. Uh, and the I beginning of physical out. fitness for children. The beginning of the end of physical fitness for children. Because they get Good to call. now stay inside and not ever do anything physically active. All right. Let's go back to the NFL in November. There they are. There's the the uh, killer bees, I guess. Although, no, although that's, that's 82. No, no. That's Manny Fernandez is 75 and uh, Bonacani. And I think that's probably that? the no-name defense. What do they the call The no-name defense. Okay. There it right. is. No name defense. They were unbelievable. They were 4 0 in November. So now they are 9. Now they're 11 0. Earl Morrill is still at the helm. Those are the Miami Dolphins. We're going to move to college football right now. And there's Anthony Davis running oh, roughshod well. over Notre Dame. Now, I was at the game in 74, John, where Notre Dame got out to a 24 0 lead over USC in the Coliseum. And Anthony Davis just ran rough shot over them, had four touchdowns in that game. But two years prior, he had six touchdowns against Notre Dame, had one that uh, the, he had one in his junior year. So he had 11 touchdowns against Notre Dame in his career. But in on this day, December 2nd, 1972, six touchdowns against this guy. I What's interviewed uh, Eric Parsegian. I, I don't know if you, it was you and I or it was Ryder Claremont and myself. I, I, Right. I was there. I mean, I was there at the club when Aaron was there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And had a great discussion with with the coach. And, uh, you know, at, at one point in time, I was a Notre. At this point in time, actually, I was a Notre Dame fan and as I was an Ohio State fan. So I didn't care for USC at all. Um, but I remember this game vividly um, because, I, you know, a, after that, I thought Anthony Davis would be the greatest NFL football player in the year. And I think I think he had like five years in the NFL. He played for the Buccaneers at one point for John McKay. But um I, uh, I said to Coach Parsegian at a point, I said, listen, I'm just going to say one name to you, and I, I just have to see how you respond. And I said, uh, Anthony Davis. And he went, oh. And he's like, why do we keep kicking it to him? Because I think he had he had at least one kickoff return. I think a punt return as well for a touchdown. He was a – they had no answer for Anthony Davis. They and did. it was not – it made no sense at that point. I mean, Davis was a great, great player. But it made no sense that he had, was able to have that amount of success. But that it's maybe the greatest individual performance this side of Vince Young in the national championship game and, that I remember and, in college football. And that's as a sophomore. And out of the 11 touchdowns in his career against Notre Dame, I think at least four were runbacks. Yeah. That game in 1974, the Heisman Trophy vote had already happened. And they changed the rule after that year to say you have to wait for the regular season to get over because Anthony Davis finished in second place to Archie Griffin and may very well have won the Heisman. 
uh, because oftentimes that's also a, an award, at least back in the day, of the entire career. And if you have a great senior year, then you know you're you're in line right. to possibly get it. And he he probably was robbed of the Heisman Trophy that year because they had already voted prior to that game. It's amazing. He was there at USC, won two national championships uh, with the football team, including in 1972, the year we're talking about, and also won three national championships <laughs> as a member of the baseball team. In 1972, he was a utility outfielder for them. He wasn't a starter until 74, but the uh, Trojans won the national championship in football as well. So he was the only one in school history to win a national, to be a starter for the national championship team in football and baseball, remarkable career. And, and as a matter of fact, he was ready to be drafted into the NFL and, and teams were ready to, to start him right away. But he had contract demands and the WFL was, was there at the time. So he went to the WFL and made a, you know, a great salary for the five or six games they paid him, but apparently got a $200,000 advance. Mm -hmm. That league collapsed, but then he went to Canada, uh, kind of ran into trouble up there because he didn't get along with the coach. And then finally went back to the NFL, but by then, you know, didn't have much success. But yeah, Anthony Davis, Notre Dame, Eric Parsegian. I was so, <laughs> Anthony Parsegian was such a great guy. Oh, yeah. He was such a great guy. And but I just had to ask because I, you know, I told him at the time, I said, you know, I'm so familiar because when I was a kid, you know, that era, you got one college football game on a weekend at most, but you got Notre Dame football highlights with Lindsey Nelson doing. It. So I knew a lot about Notre Dame. And I always, you know, watched USC because you wanted to see if USC or UCLA would end up playing Ohio State or Michigan in the Rose Bowl, since that would those were the only choices apparently at that point in time. And uh, I just remember watching, you know, because, again, this is the first year that I'm actually playing competitive, uh, organized yeah. football. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, as a kid, you know, you, just, you, you start to get into it. And just seeing him dominate to this day, I have no idea why he's not considered the greatest college football player of all time. I agree. I agree. All right. We're going to move on now in December. On December 7th, Apollo 13, uh lands on the moon and this is the final lunar journey so this is the last time uh the apollo mission the apollo mission is over at this point in time this is the last time they land on the moon and they take the famous blue marble photo mm. of the earth uh, at that point in time this is very interesting it's amazing what nasa did in that short period of time johnny i mean this is apollo 17 and only three years prior it was apollo 11 mm -hmm. crying out loud and, you know, they, they dealt, you know, this is three other missions, four other missions after everything went, could have gone horribly, horribly wrong with Apollo 13. Yeah. Um, remarkable. So this is the last one this day. And they'd December scheduled up to, I think, 21. Uh, I think they'd scheduled up to 21. But at this point, people, you know, we were, we were moving into like oil crisis time and the economy and people just didn't under, could not justify the billions of dollars a year it kept to keep yeah. NASA going at that point. Yep. And of course, we talked about this, that Richard Nixon, um, you know, started the shuttle program uh, yeah. as a result of this, of the Apollo program sh uh, shutting down. He started the shuttle program. All right. So now we, we're going to go back in about the 16th of December. We're going to check in with the Miami Dolphins. It's the last game of the season. And sure enough, yes, they're undefeated in December 3-0. They're the first team to go 14-0 uh, to finish a season uh, untied and undefeated. Uh, in the National Football League. You know, the Browns did it, actually, uh, as a member of the American uh, All-American Football Conference. I right. think it was 1947. They were untied 
and undefeated and champions of that league. And to your point, John, the Browns have had you know, a really tough time of it the last 20, 30 years, 40 years, whatever you want to say. They've never been to a Super Bowl. You could argue 50 years. And, um, and it's your point. Same with the Dolphins. It's like there's a price to pay. When you make this kind of history in sports, your fans, there's a price to pay. Right. It's not the lake of fire, but it's a it's a steep price. Yeah. And you can look at the Browns because, you know, people who don't know that story came from the All-American Football Conference and moved into the NFL and they were immediately in the championship game. I mean, you know, Paul Brown was such a, you know, talk about a unicorn. He invented professional football in many ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that Dolphin team, you know, I always uh, our good friend. Um, Rodney. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it. uh I always, you know, can, can get him by saying, you know, you, when he was spouting off about some sort of sports thing, it's always like, well, the last, you know, your team last won a Super Bowl during the Nixon administration, yeah. for God's yeah. sake. Um, but they are still the only undefeated team that won the championship. Regular season undefeated team ran through the playoffs. The Patriots had a chance to change that. But the true uh, Hall of Fame Manning uh, kind of stopped that. Yeah, he did. And and the, this Dolphin team really deserved them. They were their number one offense. They were the number one defense. Like like we said, they didn't even have their starting quarterback from the middle of game five on. Earl Morrill ended up starting 11 games for them, including the divisional and the conference championship game. He started those games. So he started 11 games for them, threw for 12 touchdowns. <laughs> and yet this team was undefeated. It's a, a remarkable story. We'll get into it in just a bit. About and Earl Morrill, who who Earl Morrill, who played in three of the first seven Super Bowls. Well, he played. Obviously, he was the starting quarterback for the Colts in Super Bowl three. Played yep. in in Super Bowl seven, Super this Bowl five. Here, he played Super, in Super Bowl five. Super Bowl five with the Colts as well, I guess. So, yep. um, that's amazing. And uh, you know, not necessarily an unremarkable career. I think it was. Uh, no, I think I, I want to think. Of, I want levels. And I want to say he was drafted by like the Detroit Lions in 1957 or something equally, yeah. you know, 58, right in that, you know, he, he, uh, yeah, a, a remarkable career. I think he just passed away a couple of years ago, Earl Morrill, um, NFL MVP in 1968. But yeah, he really doesn't get enough credit for that 72 team. Everybody sees Greasy in the, the Super Bowl seven and, uh, you know, the AFC championship game. He does come into that game in Pittsburgh, by the way. Rules were different at that point in time. They yeah. rotated who the home team was. The Dolphins were undefeated, had to go on the road yeah. to play Unbelievable. Pittsburgh. Unbelievable. Um, they changed those rules uh, pretty shortly thereafter. Yeah. All right. So it's the postseason now. And uh, both the Dolphins and, and uh, their opponent in the Super Bowl are scheduled to play their division game on the 24th. But on the 23rd, Pittsburgh is playing its first playoff game since 1947 and its second playoff game ever in the National Football League. And, uh, well, history was made with the immaculate reception. There it is. Uh, you know, the Steelers are down by a point. There's 30 seconds, 22 seconds left. It's fourth down and 10. And and Bradshaw goes back and he's he's you know, flushed out. He does the Eli Manning. Out. It's like Manning in that uh, that throw in the Super Bowl. I mean, it, it looks like he's just going to be sacked, frankly. Yeah, looks like he's going to be sacked. Throws it to – it was planning on throwing to someone else. Ends up throwing Frenchy it to – Frenchie Fuqua. Frenchie Fuqua. And uh, 
We all know what happened. It bounces off of either Fuqua or Tatum or both. We don't know. Uh, It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It obviously is an amazing play, ushered in a great era for Pittsburgh and ushered in a great rivalry between those two teams. Certainly in the 1970s, they sort of traded victories in the postseason. And um, it's, it's remarkable. It was voted the best play, the greatest play of all time, John, by the NFL films. It's, it's and, hard to argue against it. I mean, I think the yeah, only other I one it, in my lifetime that comes to mind is, uh, is the catch, frankly, in the 1981 NFC Championship game um, that uh, San Francisco over Dallas. But the interesting thing about this play, and I, I – I was watching some NFL film stuff recently in preparation for this show. And a number of things happened in this that just upset John Madden to this day. First of all, the rules in NFL football at that point in time were if the ball bounced off a receiver, another receiver on that team could not catch it. So if the ball did indeed hit Frenchie Fuqua, which it appears in some angles as if it did and other angles, not so much. And this was in an era before 30 cameras, you know, there were four, um, then it would have been an incomplete pass. It probably would have been dead at that point. But Franco does does catch the ball. And then Phil Villapiano is overtly clipped uh, seconds later, and, and, a, and he's in a position to make that play, um, and he doesn't. Franco runs into the end zone. There is mass confusion. 72 gold medal basketball-like confusion happening oh, at yeah. this point. Absolutely. And the, the referees go in and get on the phone. And they're speaking to someone. And to this day, we don't know who they're talking to. And they come out and basically say, touchdown, let's get the hell out of here. And John Baden has always argued that the league is like, Jesus, call it a touchdown and get out of there. There's going to be a riot. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, and Oakland, it was at the beginning of, to your point, Oakland and Pittsburgh at that period of time uh, was such a great rivalry. And Oakland, to get over that Pittsburgh hump, they play another either divisional or conference championship in 74 or 75 yeah. there, yeah. and the field is a sheet of ice. I mean, and when I say, if you go back and look at the videos of this game, I mean, it re- you would not play a game on that field in this day and age. It was yeah just a sheet of ice and Oakland was a team that as we know based their offense on speed and if you're running on ice that makes that incredibly difficult and then they finally get over the hump in 1976 in a game where Pittsburgh will say well we were out Harris or Blyer in that game Um, it's just you know this goes back to I could talk about this stuff forever but that play is definitely there's a there's a statue of it in the Pittsburgh airport for yes, of, of, yes, it's great. And it's a Franco catching that ball barely above the ground yep. uh, in full stride because he was running out there to see if he needed some sort of a, you know, check down receiver. If he Rookie, got to, Franco yeah. Harris, right? Rookie, Rookie. Rookie year and uh, makes his bones right then and there. Uh, and they go on to play the Dolphins. But let's talk about the Dolphins playoff run. It starts December 24th. And uh, it was it was closer than you would think. They played the Browns. They were down to the Browns, John, with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. And then they played the Steelers, of course, later on. And the Steelers gave them a good game in three rivers. But uh, during that game, Bob Greasy finally came back in the second half. They were after, struggling offensively, yeah. Yep, they were. And, um, and Bob Greasy came back in, and his first throw, his first throw was a 52-yard completion to Paul Warfield. Uh, the Dolphins then sort of didn't look back uh, with the Steelers 
and went on to the Super Bowl. But it was not easy for the Dolphins, who had won, who won these two games by an average of five points, when they had won every game in 1972, the regular season, by an average of 15 points. Yeah, and it needs to so be pointed out. Don Shula getting a little tight, but the team was just so too good, you know. Too good. He, they overcame Don Shula, and I think that, that needs to be uh, what we hang our hat on in that. The pictures that are right. up here for people who are listening and not seeing, there's a, the photo of the Browns and the, and the uh, Dolphins in that divisional playoff and then championship game. That's Larry Seipel. Uh, number 20, he's the punter for the Miami Dolphins. And one of the most famous plays in that is a fake punt on a fourth down where Larry Seipel, uh, Pittsburgh is setting up. I, I, and I don't know the whole scenario at this point in time, but that game could have gone either way at that point. And Seipel pulls it down yeah. and runs and picks up, I don't know, like 30 yards and a first down. And it really kind of changes that entire game and gives it to Miami. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, that run for that team through the playoffs, to your point, Mark, as dominant as they had been. Oh, yeah. Um, many people would argue if you look at their schedule, they played a lot of bad teams, there were a lot of bad teams in the AFC at that point in time, in that division and otherwise. Um, but they got it done under the under those circumstances and certainly deserve to get to the Super Bowl. Yeah, New England won three games that year, one of them against the Washington team. Uh, Buffalo won only four games, one of them against the Washington team. And, um, and yeah, those are two of the teams in that division. Let's talk about Washington. Now, earlier I said that um, there, there's two things con- converging here, Johnny, is that you have to talk about the history. You have to talk about what they were called, if for nothing more, to point out how ridiculous it is that they used a a, a slur, Mm -hmm. a racist slur for their nickname for all of those years. But if you were to just say the historical name, then you risk offending the very people that the name was changed for. You risk a lot of things, in my opinion. It's a fine line. To call them the Washington football team now doesn't make any sense because that's not what they were called back then. Right. So you've got to refer to what they were called back then without actually saying the name. So I thought I would call them the Washington slurs. What do you think of that? (laughs) I might have gone with skins. Because that's what we all called them, or Native Americans, which they had become for a lot of announcers. The skins but. isn't bad. The skins isn't bad. I was thinking about the Washington R word, but I'm not <laughs> sure. Fair enough. I'm not sure. Either way, yeah. let's talk about them. Because meanwhile, they had a pretty damn good year as well. A very impressive run. And it's and it's interesting. You know what? In 1972, you, you know this, Johnny, but they were the only professional team left in D.C. at that time. Mm-hmm. The Senators had, had, had left and After the, the 71 uh, season and the bullets had left. Correct. They had gone to Baltimore. No, actually, that's uh, they, they, uh, went from Baltimore they, they came from Baltimore to D.C. It yeah. was before they got to D.C. They were the Baltimore Bullets and then came to Washington. And then came to Washington. So, but in 1972, the only professional team in a major, major sports market in America. Right. Caps were, didn't come in until 74. So, yes, they were the right, only were team. The Washington slurs of the Washington R words. <laughs> Call them the skins. Okay, the Washington Skins. And uh, so, so there they are. Now, this team, uh, you know, George Allen had uh, revitalized in 71. They had made the playoffs for the first time in 26 years in 1970. George Allen, kind of Billy Martinish. 
Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Although Billy Martin had much more success in the postseason than George Allen did. But he came, but he came, you know, and he only really had that. Now, he did take over a Washington team that in 1969 under Vince Lombardi had really, really turned it around yes. and had a winning, winning season for the very first time since the one year in the 50s. And, I, you know, you go back to the Sammy Baugh era for them. But, uh, but, but George Allen was a great football coach. He, you know, he, he had some great Rams teams that couldn't get past um, the Packers. In uh, right in the he, 60s and late 60s, coached some great Rams teams and um, coached them out of oblivion into you know relevancy. Uh, they were very very good in the late 60s. The Los Angeles Rams with uh, Roman Gabriel, Jack Snow, uh, I believe Jack yeah. Youngblood at the time, uh, and the, the fearsome foursome. I mean that defense was one of the best. And they had some guys who played for for uh, the Redskins as well. Um, and now I've said the name uh, for the Skins as well. Um, Jack Party among them uh, were guys who came over from Los Angeles with him because he did not believe in rookies. He really didn't. So George Allen's got this team going and it, there's a lot of similarities, believe it or not, between the skins and the dolphins. First of all, they were seventh in the league in offense, third in defense. Uh, they had an MVP in their midst. Larry Brown, the running back was the MVP of the league that year. Great. And think about this after 12 games, Washington was 11 and one. The only loss was inexplicably to New England by one point. So they were two points away from being undefeated 12 games into the season, yeah. uh, like the Dolphins. Also, the Dolphins, uh, a little bit into the season, that they had a quarterback change. After that New England loss, Allen pulled Kilmer and put Sonny Jurgensen in, who was still a huge crowd favorite at age 38. Mm-hmm. And all he did was go in and win four games in a row before tearing his Achilles and essentially yep. ending his career. I remember. But, yeah. Remember. Yeah. Well. So they were 11 and one. They, they were as dominant. And the last two games against Dallas and against Buffalo probably don't really count because home field to your point, John didn't matter. Then it, it was all a rotation basis, right? Uh, uh, division winners would just be rotated with a uh, venue home field, the whole bit. So they rested starters in their last two games and they finished 11 and three. And, um, and went into the playoffs. And that third-ranked defense was stellar in the playoffs. They played Green Bay, who hadn't been to the postseason since 1967. And this is the last time they make it to the postseason to the Bre- till the Brett Favre era. Till 1992. Oh, by the way, or 93, I'm, I, it might be. Yep. And, and uh, they don't give up a touchdown to either the Packers or the Cowboys. They give up three points in both of those games. They get through the whole playoffs to the Super Bowl without giving up a touchdown. That's a that's a huge run. Yeah, and that Packer team that people forget about, they had a great one-two running, uh, one-two running back punch with um, John Brockington and MacArthur Lane. And uh, they were just power football team. And then you had Dallas with the multiple offense with all the shifting. And they had, you know, Drew Pearson at this point and Staubach. So, yeah, that Washington defense was good against the run and against the pass. The average age of those guys was 54, I believe. They're the over the hill gang, uh, as they were known at that point in time. And uh, at the pictures that you have up there, and I remember those so well, that's Allen being carried off after the Dallas win. Um, on, I believe, New Year's Eve, Eve, December 31st, New Year's Eve of 1972. There's Kurt Knight, uh, Coast Guard Academy's own Kurt Knight, uh, kicking uh, field goals for them there. But uh, yeah, that's just, uh, man, uh, boy, memories. Yep. And the Washington football team played the Dolphins 
pretty closely. They really did. Yards-wise, first down-wise. Yeah. The only difference was Kilmer's three interceptions. Yeah. And uh, one of those interceptions was the, the worst when he had just missed a touchdown because the football hit the crossbar. Yeah. Uh, and had Jerry Smith had, wide open in the back of the end zone in the wide scored open. touchdown. Yep. And then right after that was, I think, his third pick. Yes, the Gary Premium thing kept things close, but it was a close game regardless. And um, in the end, the Dolphins pull it out like they had all year long and become the only undefeated, untied team in NFL history. Yeah, the the, the Miami defense was stellar in that game. I mean, they really did, to, to your point, Washington didn't move the ball very well at all. They were all over Billy Kilmer, um, who uh, just one of my favorite players of all time, um, just was beaten senseless in that game, as he was with most games, given his lack of uh, physical ability. But the interesting thing about that game is that people – uh, may not remember is Darryl Premium setting up for the field goal, the very famous one that's blocked, and Mike Bass runs it back for a touchdown to make the game 14-7. to um, And uh, the interesting thing about that is Miami ended up 17-0, and if Garrow had had uh, kicked that field goal, they would have beaten Washington 17 to nothing. Yeah. So there would have been a great deal of synchronicity. And apparently forever following that, Don Shula, who apparently held a grudge, was angry with Garrow. Premium for just not falling on the ball, trying to make the throw. Yeah, uh, was yeah. Uh, pretty was, ridiculous. Was the Cyprian uh, obviously not not a lot of uh, not a lot of success as a quarterback? Though Steve Garker pointing out a one hundred percent completion percentage in his career. Sadly, that completion was to uh, to Mike Bass. Um, but uh, yeah, that this, the 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 fact that Miami could have finished a seventeen and zero season with a seventeen to nothing win. Um, you know the the karma was starting to already creep up for the Miami Dolphins as we've as we've said. Well, oh yeah, we've known this, and and the the price was uh, was obviously going to be steep for Dolphin fans. Uh, yep. You know, in the following fifty years, essentially, because uh, yeah, they that team was so good that it that it even outdid Don Shula's tendency to clam and get hyped. <laughs> And then he got lucky in Super Bowl eight because he played the Vikings. And I mean, honestly, you and I, nine other people playing both ways would have beat the Vikings in a Super Bowl. In, in a Super Bowl. And 70s. It's just an except uh, they're, they're one of the most dominant teams outside of the Super Bowl. Dominant, dominant. And uh, boy, they just can't they just can't get it together. Super Bowl time. All right. Let's move on to uh, Christmas Day. And here comes Sports Illustrated with their sports Men of the year sportsman of the year this is the first time though they had a sportsman of the year and a sportswoman of the year first time this ever happened yet another first it's christmas time and we're still making firsts in 1972 billy jean had won the french and won wimbledon and won the u.s open that year she was a sportswoman of the year john wooden we had talked about earlier and won his sixth straight i believe uh ncaa title earlier that year and they shared that honor and it was the first time they broke the uh you know, the glass ceiling, uh, the sex barrier for that. And it's, you know, it's been sports person essentially ever since. It's amazing, 1972, but it was a big year. You know, you yeah, had, it really you had, was. You had, to, you had to break through a lot of things. And this was a tremendous year for Billie Jean King. Oh, it God, really yeah. was. And then the following year, of course, she has the, the battle of the sexes <laughs> with Bobby Riggs. And she's uh, she's on she's on a serious role. It's not that long before 
Chris Everett sort of takes over from that, and then Martina. She but really, I mean, it, left, but she, she had really a, did put women's tennis on the on on the map. I mean, there there had been interest in women's tennis before that, but she was really the first superstar, well known. Again, I'm you know I'm old enough to remember she was showing up on the Mike Douglas show, and she was showing up on um, yeah on, on primetime shows. Billie Jean King, she was. You know, in 1972, to your point, a year of firsts, the athletes that we saw again and again and again were Mark Spitz, Billie Jean King. I mean, those were they they were out there as much as anybody yeah. in that year. Yep, there she was. And she shares it with John Wooden. It's the first time a female is uh, named sports person of the year. SI did that. Good for them. And then, of course, uh, the year ends very, very tragically. December 31st, uh, New Year's Eve, I know. You were happy about the Washington Redskins winning the NFC championship and the Dolphins had won the AFC championship. But December 31st, of course, uh, Roberto Clemente, uh, because he's such a good guy, he charts, charters an airplane. He's trying to bring food and relief to Nicaragua that had suffered a horrible earthquake. And uh, the plane was overloaded by, I believe, 4,200 pounds. Uh, it had a history of mechanical issues, and it you know made it off the runway and crashed uh, right off uh Puerto Rico into the and his body's never recovered. Never recovered, and it's just a sad, sad thing. He he sort of knew he he sort of had a premonition that he he might die young. He he was asked in 1971 about 3,000 hits, and he says, "Well, if I'm still alive, I, I I'd like to do that." He says, "You just never know. You you your you know your days are already numbered before you're born." I mean, it was just you know he had he had siblings who had died young, and yeah, so he was very very you know grounded and and steeped in that kind of thing and it was such a uh, you know such a tragedy and what it did is he broke it was the first time that um the hall of fame decided to have an alternative to the five-year retirement period they actually right. made a new rule because of roberto clemente's death and that says a player has to be deceased at least six months before they're eligible for the hall of fame and then sure enough the very next year roberto clemente is elected to the hall of fame uh, immediately, that's the first time that's ever happened that early because of that new rule, and it was the first time a Latin uh, player from Latin America or uh, the uh, Car uh, Car Car Caribbean player, my goodness, Caribbean, Caribbean. Um, was to be enshrined. And uh, so yeah. a lot of firsts, even with in the midst of that tragedy. But boy, oh boy, I remember that as well. You know, Roberto Clemente, we've talked about this, iconic, iconic, and 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 for you. Just coming onto the sport, no, yeah. checking. And it I had out family in, in Western Pennsylvania. My mom's family's all yeah. from Western Pennsylvania. So they were all Pirates yeah. fans, you know. Yeah. And that was just that was just so tough. And the and the Pirates, you know, the Pirates continued to do well after his death. They won another uh, they won another division title in '73. They lost to the Mets, and I think um, they might might have won another one in '74. I think it was the Phillies got in there '76, '77, and '78. And so, in '79 they went at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. As a matter of as a matter of fact, they lost the Mets in '73. So the Mets got in there. The Mets got in there in '73, and I think the Pirates were back in '74, '75. Lost to the Dodgers and lost to the Reds, and then it was the Phillies' turn. And then in '79, they they won it again, and uh, that was a run for Pittsburgh. They had a yeah. World Series in '60, '71, and '79. So they won one without Roberto, uh, and that does it for uh, 1972. A year of first, Johnny. There they are, part year. three. We've gone through the whole year. Unbelievable, unbelievable year. Olympics, election, 
all kinds of records and milestones in sports. And there it is. And that's it. Yep. And, uh, and what we've done over the last three parts is sort of the basis, the foundation of what we're going to be doing here on out. John and Mark, previously known as After Further Review, we're going to concentrate on years and expand, uh, you know, expand it a little bit from sports and politics to pop culture and the like. Yeah, it's going to be a lot like this, though. I think we're going to we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the years uh, to do other things. We may not spend quite as much time on some of the sports stuff, though. We're certainly going to touch on it. Um, it's, uh, you know, you and I realizing nobody really needs it for us to talk about day to day sports stuff. And there as, as much as I wanted to bring up, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers and Ben Roethlisberger today. Um, because that that rep that relationship seems to be a little rockier than uh, than maybe we previously thought. Um, it, there's there are a lot of people out there who can do it and do, can do it better. They have the resources to do it better. Um, well, and, and they, they have name recognition. And right. That, that vein is tapped. Right. That and vein, there's no chance for us to gain any traction at all with general sports talk. There just isn't. And admittedly, you know, we we get together, you and I. Uh, what's the guy's name who moved? He sent me a text today saying, "Never forget." Well, nice, anyway, Riley, Tim, our friends, you know, the the core group of our we get together, and uh, you know, the three out of the four of those guys are we're big sports guys, but the conversation always goes elsewhere. I mean, we're our interests are a little wider than that, and so we thought we would combine our interest in history, politics, pop culture, music, movies, television, theater, sports, and just deep dive into a year. Because I think it's, um, I, I, I have always opined, and I, I believe this to be true. I was watching a documentary last night on Marian Anderson, um, who famously uh, was denied being able in 1939 to sing at uh, Constitution Hall, which is a venue that I've been to on numerous occasions. I saw Eddie Murphy at Constitution Hall, for God's sake, um, and sang in front of the Lincoln Memorial. It's a very famous moment in history. But, you know, watching with 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 Jody, my wife, and talking about, you know, the, there are these amazing things about history. And I, a lot too many people say to me, I find history boring. And I don't think history is boring at all. So with our limited skill set, we are going to try to make history interesting and, and hopefully for me anyway, and really I'm talked about what, uh, what the goal is, uh, certainly to monetize something would be a goal for both of us at some point, concept. but, um, also just to get give people, give people a level of interest, um, in, you know, gosh, so we've talked about 1972. Now maybe somebody does want to jump in and, and, and look at Bobby Fisher and what we were talking about and what, what, what became of him and what he was. And so hopefully, you know, we can inspire that sort of thing, because I think it, I think it's poorly, I think it isn't in, in no offense to any teachers out there, but I, 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 you know, I go back to my own education and I think history is kind of poorly taught to people. And, uh, it's not just about dates and, uh, things that happened it's about people and how people respond to situations and also patterns historical patterns because we talked about before you know 1972 black september you know arab uh, issues with uh within the arab uh, world that we're still seeing today you know you mentioned the plo and hamas and all of those things were then were a part of life then 
I, I went into such a rabbit hole when I was doing the, the stuff on the Munich massacre uh, of just the whole Israeli-Palestinian problem. The it's Israeli crazy. It's problem. And, and I, was, I got into a serious rabbit hole, you know, yeah. starting in 1947, starting with the United Nations Charter that just blew up the Middle East, uh, was not supported at all by the Arabs, was totally supported by the Israelis. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It is heartbreaking. And it is highly, highly complicated. But it, and, and that is just one story like that, Mark. I always try to re- always remind everyone because I was I was working the ESPN club and I found this out. And there was a book called Paris 1919 about the the, um, uh, the peace Versailles um, Treaty. The Versailles Treaty after World War One. And I found out that Ho Chi Minh was in Paris in 1919 arguing for independence for Vietnam at that point in time. And people don't think of Vietnam. People think of Vietnam, you know, Dien Bien Phu in the 50s would be 35 years before that. It was it was an issue. And, uh, you know, it's just the tentacles of history. The the degrees of separation between um, historical events is much closer than 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 people realize. And uh, hopefully we can shed a little bit of light on that. And then maybe focus on some people, too. We're going to do 1960 next. And some of the people we'll focus on are sports people. You know, the Ernie Davises of the world, Bill Russell. But we're also going to uh, concentrate on George Abbott, theatrical producer, director, and writer George Abbott. Also, John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd. We're going to get into it. It's going to be wide. It's going to be fun. It's going to be the same fun banter and hopefully as humorous as before, but a little bit uh, a, a little bit slicker, perhaps a little bit more production values on it. And uh, in the end, it's going to be banking off what you've seen, but uh, but better in terms of these year, uh, you know, these these breakdowns of these years. It's going to be it's going to be better than that. And we are going to change the name of the show, John Pelkey. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of after further reviews. And when we first came up with that, we thought it was such a great thing because it started when we were doing radio shows and we were. You know, we were not the morning show. We were coming on later in the day. And it's like, well, you know, we're reviewing how in a lot of ways, how other sports journalists are talking about the stories of the day. But um, there's a lot of after further reviews out there. So we had to come up with a, a name um, and uh, we, we, we ran through a lot of names, Mark. We did. Um, we ran through Reeling in the Years, which which we sadly, there's already a podcast called Reeling in the Years that deals with music. Um um, my favorite was who the fuck are you? Uh, which I thought was a great name, uh, for any podcast that you and I do. Cause I think that's, um, but we have arrived at a name and, um, I guess we're going to tell people the name, I guess we probably should, since we're going to go away for a couple of weeks. Yeah. I know you were, you were opposed to this. You wanted to do the first show tomorrow. And I thought, well, you know, I wanted a month. So we decided on two weeks, but I think because there's going to be more production, Yep. Um, it's not going to be live on Facebook any longer. Um, we'll keep our YouTube channel. We're going we will to keep our YouTube channel. I, I opined. I thought a decent idea was when the pod drops, maybe we go live on Facebook and just talk about what the pod's going to be when, when it drops. Maybe we can continue to do this in some way. That'll give us an opportunity to maybe chat a little bit about things that are going on sports. We're, we're also going to have, you know, in the future, we will have shows with Derek Abbott, talking about the NFL draft. We want to kind of expand that into maybe some special stuff. 
Um, but we just want to put something together that's a little more produced and uh, hopefully still entertaining. Um, yep. And, and uh, there it is. We're plays a little more to our strengths. Uh, and I think we're going to have a Patreon account where if you want uh, extras, you know, you can have a little subscriber fee, one, two, whatever you want to pay per month. And we get we, we give you uh, we really? give you extras. That's a thing, John. Apparently, that's a thing. Jeff Taylor, our producer, has been telling us we should get a Patreon account. Yeah. This whole time. And I, yeah. I've never even registered that because I didn't know what that meant. So. Um, so yeah, I still don't know what that means. Right. OK. And at any rate, what's our name, Johnny? What's our new name? The, the, the new name of the show will be My Favorite Year. And that is because there are no podcasts currently called My Favorite Year, which is part of part of the big one. So if you search for it, that's what you're going to find. And um, I, 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 you know, you joked and you said every show would be kind of a funny thing if we go, well, this is my favorite year. And it's like every year is a favorite year. But to, to the point when we talk about history, I think every year has a sure. lot to offer as a thought-provoking, entertaining year. Yeah, thought-provoking and entertaining. That's what we are. Yeah, for 19, uh, fun, fun yeah, band. We will yeah. not talk about 1979. I will no, tell you, I will argue against well. that. That was the worst year of my life. Yeah. Maybe um, Steelers won the Super Bowl, so that's not good. Uh, a, 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 a wholly inferior Pittsburgh pirate team beat the Orioles. And so that, I don't, I don't care for that at all. Ridiculous. Um, and yeah. it was the, it was the single worst year of my life. Yes. So that's, that's going to be well down the list. Yeah. We will not get to 1979. Sorry, the knack. We're not going to get there. So, <laughs> <laughs> and come on, good girls don't is the best Nat song. It's much better than my throne. I, I would argue that oh, yeah. for years. Absolutely. Oh, now, and they'll be multi-part, just like this. They're going to be multi, uh, multi-part episodes. Right. We're going to cover three to four months for every. So there'll be either three or four episodes per year. And that's what we're going to do. And we're, we're going to take a couple of weeks off to put the first one together. And, uh, and then we'll see, you know, cause we, we've done a year of these now. We've been doing this for over a year. Yeah. Three or four ep- episodes per year. Three or episodes per, uh, per, per year that we're touching. Four that shouldn't have been that difficult that for you. Sense. Are you sure you're no, up? No, it was this? for me. I'm so sorry. You, yeah, I'm you know what sure it is? It's two o four. Our show's two o four right now. This should have been a two part finale of nineteen seventy two. It's the last after further review show. So you know it is. So here because we I want to go on. This is the last one. I'm a sentimental uh, man. Yep, but we're all going to keep moving. The, just the name has changed. We've had the name since 2012, so it's been a long time. But it's time to move on, and it's something that we love to do. And uh, sports will not get a short shrift in this at all. We're just going to expand some things and get into what we love, and hopefully you guys love it as well. You folks out there love it as well. All right, for Jeff Taylor, our producer, who's going to be right there with us, uh, leading us along, telling us things he's told us for a year, reminding us that. Uh, for John, and John still has one more thing to say. Yes, sir. Uh, Steve Carricker asking a question. Will AFR uh, link notify po- podcast watch, uh, watchers when the next show is coming on? We will indeed. We will let people know. Because yes, we, we, we don't really know right now. Yes, we, we will let everyone sure. know about the change, and uh, we'll let everyone know when the new podcast is, and we'll tell everyone what to do to subscribe and do all those things. And I think we're going to have a great time. Are you happy, Johnny? I'm happy. I, I am absolutely. I think it's a good move. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know me. I'd rather talk about uh, history anyway. I can't wait till we get into 1862. Ha, ha, ha.
<laughs> My favorite year, starring John Pelkey, Mark Ferrer, produced. Ooh, I like that. Taylor. My name gets to be first now. Jesus, we didn't even talk about that. Hell, starring, be happy. starring John Pelkey and Mark Ferrer. I think that others. Be and others, yes. All right, we'll be back in two weeks with my favorite year. Stay safe, folks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.